Special Agent Joe Pirasante talks about the dangers he faced on his first tour in Afghanistan. I would say probably that first tour was on about 10 missions or so, 10 to 12, and only two times I did not have to fire my gun. You know, because you got to figure, you're behind enemy lines. This is their money. So they're going to fight like hell to hold on to their money. And the problem was the area we were in the first tour, Panjaway, a lot of emplaced IEDs. So a lot of people were getting messed up with IEDs. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Everybody, welcome back after just a terrific, I mean, we've been having a great run of episodes, Murph, and, and I'm telling you, uh, episode 21, Stephen Matelski, I was just up in Toronto, and I didn't have the time, but I wanted to go visit a couple of the places he talked about, eh? But uh, <laughs> it was good, eh? Yep, yep. He was fantastic, you know, and, and the, the response from the listeners, you guys really like that uh, organized crime stuff, the mafia stuff, so we're going to see what we can do to help out in a little bit with some more stuff in that. Yeah, you know what we forgot to do? Forgot to introduce myself. I forgot to introduce yourself. So, hey, nope. I'm Morgan Wright. <laughs> hey, I'm Murph. You know who we are. Yeah, I know, but, but, but you know, we may have first-time listeners, so we've just got to let everybody know. So, hey, we're the ultimate hosts of the best true crime long-form interview podcast anywhere in the world called Game of Crimes. We are it. So That's us. Thank you. By the way, but it was a master class, I mean, last week. I mean, Stephen just putting, it was the professor was in session, and his encyclopedic knowledge mm-hmm. of just everything. Uh, of, I mean, no wonder he crushed it when he was working with informants and working with the RCMP. So, man, again, we, we got—and you know what? We're kind of getting a thing. Everybody seems to love either narcos, you know, mm-hmm. narco traffickers, or mobsters. Mm-hmm. That's some sick puppies. That's why everybody—that's why we get along so well with everybody. Yeah. We like them, too. They kept us in business. Yep. And you know what? The, the cool thing, and of course our listeners can't see this, but when we do these interviews, nobody has any notes. We have our notes that we just want to make sure we touch on a bunch of different topics. But the people we interview, it's all off the top of their head. So when they're rattling off those names and dates and relationships, occurrences. The way he did it, Chris Feistel did it. I mean, just um, freaking them. I, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday <laughs> in these guys. <laughs> What's well, like Javier, you know, he's... That we, you know, a lot of people will give Javier and I a hard time because they don't understand how we've been partners so much, so many years since 1991 because we're complete opposites. He's the most disorganized person you might ever meet. Where I'm very organized, but he's got a brain like an encyclopedia. He just wows me every time we have a discussion. You are the odd couple of narco traffickers. So yes, we are. Felix and Oscar, <laughs> <laughs> and he puts up with my crap. Yeah, well, we all do, Steve, including your wife, and I don't know how she's done it for all these years. I know, because I, I keep telling them the best thing that ever happened to you, honey. Was me. Yeah, yeah, I know. I get slapped usually when I say that. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us. Just some quick housekeeping before we get into the rest of this interview. Apple Review, five stars. It really helps us a lot. It gets us that visibility and gets more people introduced to this experience, this gift that is called Game of Crimes, so it's magic. David Copperfield, David Blaine, you know, name your favorite street magic artist. It's all of that wrapped into one. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got merch there. Uh, You know, we've got uh, our mailing list. And uh, this is where when we have episodes that have really good pictures like Stephen Matelski's, Chris Feistel's, 
we put a lot of those pictures on the episode page. So go visit the episode page and see all the cool pictures we have. You can also follow us on that thing called social media on the interwebs at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and Game of Crimes Podcast on the Instagram. But where all the things are happening, where you really need to be, is Patreon. Patreon is where we do the good stuff. And I, Steve, I have to tell you, we get together. Now that you've moved, you traitorous bastard, um, <laughs> we, ha- we have to get together, and I have to let you know it. We have had so many people this last week up their pledges from like the 5 to the 10 or the 10 to the 25. So, I mean, and, and we just, uh, it, and we enjoy that too. And we want to thank you guys who have done that because it's the content. Fantastic. We just have fun putting together the content. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you very, very much. Some of it's controversial. That's what Patreon's for. That's what you pay for. And you know what? First Amendment, freedom of speech. We would no more tell you what to say or do than, um, you know, we would want my wife telling me what to say or do. Yes. I'm sorry, honey. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> just say yes, dear, and you're good. Yes. Yeah. For you fellows out there just getting married, you just nod your head and go, yes, dear. You will survive a long time if you just do that. So life becomes easier immediately. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, but just make sure you guys, you know, go follow us at, at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got some really good stuff coming out. We're getting ready to vote as you guys hear this, as it comes out, the poll will be out for what we're going to look at in November. And we're, we're going to come up with the theme. We're not going to tell you what it is now. You'll have to join Patreon and find out what that is. But last month we reviewed a really fun one, The Departed. So you got to talk Boston, drop your eyes. And that was a fun one too. I mean, that was a, speaking of a dark, dark movie. Oh, but that was, you know, that was, a, I loved that movie. I'm sure the Massachusetts State Police didn't like it too much, but the movie was I'm wondering great. why they would agree to allow all of their stuff to be used in that because guess what? You know, he got some bad guys inside the stadies. Yeah. The stadies. You never know. Hey, but guess what? It's still, they're still on, guess what? They're in a movie and we're not. So, you know, go Isn't figure. That's true. So. But yeah, patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's where all the fun is happening. Um, also, paypal.com. Use our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes. If you just want to do a one off, a quick support for the show, we would really and greatly appreciate it. Now, for the disclaimer, this is a show about crime. Steve, I don't know if you knew that. You know, we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously according to 18 United States Code, Section 21, Part 4, Slash 2, Subparagraph 3, but... Never ourselves. And that's what makes us so much fun. Trust me, we do not take ourselves seriously. So, hey, but before we get into the really fun stuff, guess what time it is, Murph? Oh, it's time for... Small Town Police Blotters! Yay, that's the first time we've ever got it together. No, I've always had it together. You just need to get it together yeah. and quit coughing up along. You may hear Murph delay responding because he's still coughing up hairballs. But anyway, <laughs> hey, all of these stories this week, we're going to do three of them because a couple, one of them's a little bit longer, but it's funny. They come to us from the Game of Crimes fan page. Get all of these from our folks who are on the fan page. They'll post stories. So this first one comes from Eric J. Hackbart off of our Game of Crimes fan page. Now, this one is... <laughs> The headline of this is Dad Shoots Son After Refusing to Stop Playing Kadar. This comes from Blue Ash, Ohio, population 12,372. Salute. Salute. All right. Guess what? A 79-year-old Blue Ash man is accused of shooting his 50-year-old son because he wouldn't stop playing guitar. So around 5 p.m., Blue Ash first responders were called for an accidental shooting, according to police doc, an accidental shooting. Fred Hensley told police, the senior, uh, 79, told police his son would not stop playing guitar, so Hensley said he got his gun and threatened to shoot his son, which apparently he didn't threaten, he actually did. The father said he wasn't trying to hit his son, he only meant to shoot 
near him. So oh my God. they how found a can, gun. How bad can your guitar playing be that your dad comes in and shoots you? <laughs> Well, look, during the, during the uh, search, police found the gun is spent shell casing in the guitar with apparent bullet holes during the search of their home. They, they said uh, it was a fight broke out, but uh, Hensley Sr. suffered injuries to his face and mouth. The son did not remember hitting his dad, uh, but he was uh, the, the father was booked for felonious assault uh, for a $60,000 bond, and his son was also taken to the hospital for a gunshot wound to his ribcage area. So... You go to Blue Ash, Ohio, you better be able to play well or you don't You better play be able to play a good guitar lick there, son. You may not walk out of there. Well, hey, this next one comes from Heidi Overman. And this one, it has a picture that goes with it, but I'm just going to put this picture in your mind. Imagine you're standing on the edge of a bank of a huge pond. The pond is kind of green and scummy. And in that pond is a pickup truck with water up to the bed and up to the windows and it's pulling an ice fishing shack behind it that is turned over on its side and listing at 45 degrees, both of them in the water. Okay. There's your mental picture. All right. All right. And this comes to us from Barron County Sheriff's Office, Wisconsin, or Wisconsin, Wisconsin, population 45,563. Salute. All right, we want everybody to, so here's what the Sheriff's Office said on a Facebook post. We want everybody to know the driver was okay and unhurt. Alcohol was a contributing factor. No of shit. Of course. <laughs> we take these very seriously because these types of events are preventable. So make a plan. But if you know, and the first part is kind of serious. If you know anybody who needs help with alcohol or drugs, you know, let us know. Let's all make a difference to get this, uh, you know, and get them the help and help them take the first step. But they said, look, okay, yeah, it got below freezing the last couple nights. And okay, yeah, the frost has made an appearance. And sure, we love ice fishing as much as everybody else. But, and this is important. The dot, you know, the period, ice period, is period, not period, ready period, yet period, all in capitals. Keep the shacks at home for the time being. Let's enjoy the fall while it's still there. And yes, alcohol was a factor in the crash. In fact, it was the third operating under the influence, what they call OWI, operating while intoxicated incident for the night. But I thought what was funny were the hashtags in the story. Hashtag trucks don't float. Hashtags that'll buff out. Hashtags drive sober. Hashtags, well, at least they got their spot picked out. Hashtag, tell me you've been drinking without telling me you've been drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. You know, I, I, back when in my drinking days, I consumed more than my share, I'll say that. But I think I could tell if I don't want to drive out into a lake and it's not frozen. Good Lord. Yeah, pal, you might have a problem. But, hey, to, to finish off, uh, this one, this one is a little late. You know, we had a bunch of stories. Uh, this one is actually kind of Halloween related, but I think... This one, if there's a, this is one of just overdoing it on the person who wrote the report. So this comes to us from Jackie Samara Feros, one of our favorite people on the page, always mm -hmm. posting stuff, being nice. It's called Bony Express. Texas driver caught carpooling with a skeleton. And it's not, I mean, just starting with the headline, but a Texas driver was spotted in the, spotted in the carpool lane with a skeleton riding shotgun during rush hour, according to the uh, county officials. The uh, county constable shared a photo of the skeleton in a humorous, like your, you know, humorous, like bone humorous mm, Facebook uh, post window today saying that deputies had a feeling in their bones something wasn't right. Okay, now you're overdoing it. Now it gets worse. <laughs> they spotted them in an HOV lane um, with this frightful passenger's mouth agape disguised only in a baseball cap. Our deputy saw right through the ruse and issued a, the driver a bona a five uh. citation. And after a sternum lecture, deputies wished him bone voyage. That is, I'm sorry, folks, that's, that's, that is overdoing it. I got to tell you, that sounds like something you would come up with, Morgan. 
I don't oh write gosh. shit like that, man. No. You do when you're picking on the Canadians. Huh? They're going to lynch your ass. I'm doing? surprised I made it out of the country. <laughs> but, Steve, now, what year was it? This one's oh. going to be a fun one because this uh-huh. one comes from the land of my people. This comes from the Aberdeen Journal and General Advertiser for the north of Scotland. Okay. So, this happened on April 5th. You just have to tell me what year. And the, the, this is why I was laughing right before we started. The, the, the headline of the little article, Police Stupidity in St. Petersburg. Some 10 days ago, a male and female student occupying the same lodging on the Petersburg side were disturbed almost immediately that they had retired to rest by the authority, by the announcement that the police had come to search the lodging. The search, which included ripping open of mattresses, lasted till about 4 o'clock in the morning. Nothing was found of a compromising character till the subordinate police officer who had charge of the party and whose education just enabled him to decipher with difficulty any familiar words in the Roman alphabet, raced a book aloft and uttered with triumph the word revolution under the sofa where it had actually accidentally fallen. So apparently they were looking for history of the revolution and that was an for them to get a search warrant and tear the entire place up. Holy cow, I thought maybe it was that bad guitar player that got shot last day. Uh, that would have been a bagpipe player in Scotland there. <laughs> true, so, true. so what What year was it, Lot? Was it April 5th, 1870, April 5th, 1890, or April 5th, 1880? Well, let's say 1870. What the heck? Yeah, you'd be three for 20 now. There you go. There you go. Well, you know, I don't want to run such a good record. Holy cow. No, April 5th, 1880. The police stupidity in St. Petersburg. And I just love the way that they say, you know, hey, he barely had command of the Roman, you know, the language. Uh, you know, he was so stupid. And that's why they called it police stupidity. The guy couldn't read, apparently, until he found the book. Eureka, I found it. The revolution. <laughs> it sounds like he's calling for revolution. He's calling for revolution. Well, hey, thus endeth the reading for today. So, hey, You'll but guys. Never take uh, my freedom. Never. You can take our lives, but you can't take our freedom, right. said William Wallace right before he sacked York. But uh, anyway, speaking of a history lesson, we've got a great history lesson coming up on this one. I mean, this one, um, Steve, you, you helped get this one set up again. This is somebody, and we don't, we're not saying it jokingly, this is somebody, not only does he not use notes, this guy can't use notes because of what happened to him. And, you know, it just, I mean, this is just, this is one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard of. So, uh, you know, walk us into this episode with uh, Joe Pierzante. Well, Joe was a DEA agent. Uh, he's one of my new people that I really look up to. I've known Joe for a couple of years now. Didn't know him before his incident. But uh, police officer in Detroit, joined DEA, comes from a, a long lineage of police officers. Uh, Joe is a world-class bodybuilder, by the way, just so you know. So he's got like muscles on his muscles, on his muscles, on his muscles. Uh, volunteers for a program we call FAST in DEA. It's no longer there, but it was, um, it was these forward advisory support teams that we would send out to places like Afghanistan. And I don't want to get too far into the story, but long story short, Joe took a 7.62 millimeter round to the head while they were trying to extract out of uh, an area in Afghanistan and lived to tell about it. He was shot through the temple all the way through and lived to tell about it. You know what? When you say the good Lord has decided it's not your time to go, it wasn't Joe's time to go. It was not his time. But you're going to be amazed at what he's doing now, how he got through it. Um, I'm just so proud of the guy. I just can't hardly stand it. We're doing everything we can to support him. And I'm warning you right now, don't be cutting onions while you listen to this episode. I'm just telling you right now, don't be cutting onions. 
Oh, and there's, you know, and we did a long interview with him, and there's still parts of the story he didn't tell us that, that I've heard before. I heard him speak in uh, Reno, Nevada one time at a, a law enforcement conference. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And every time he'd step off the stage, the boy couldn't buy his own alcohol. He got a standing ovation. It was unbelievable. So you're getting ready to hear somebody who lives by the creed, the motto, never give up. This guy's phenomenal, Joe. So, Steve, then we should get ready, and are you ready, to play the biggest, baddest, and in this case, the most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Absolutely, and everybody. And this really is one where you want to get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Joe Pierasanti. All right, everybody, welcome. This is this is going to be a great episode, and I say that for a couple reasons. Number one, because we always have great episodes, um, but number two, this story is is one of the most amazing stories you will ever hear. I, I promise you, one of the most amazing stories you will ever hear. It, it's a story about heroism. It's a story about recovery, and it's a story about no matter what life hands you, this is how you respond to it. So, uh, Steve, let me have you do the honors because he is a fellow DEA agent. He is. So it's, uh, it's a true honor and pleasure for me to uh, introduce our next guest here. Uh, Joe Pirasante is a brother agent. Uh, we're both in retirement now. He may be doing a little bit better than me. I don't know. He just, <laughs> what you hear about is weightlifting and, and his bodybuilding escapades. Although I've seen you in that Speedo, Joe, and I just cringe every time I see that. I just, oh, it's one of those things I can't get out of my mind for like the next day. I can't sleep. We see you in a thong, Murph, and we think the same thing, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't I don't know. You always volunteer to oil me up, though, so. Uh, hey, hey, just don't ask, don't tell, brother. What are you doing? <laughs> but I guess honestly, that's the official introduction, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so you can dial already. This is going to be a very serious episode. <laughs> But uh, and and I, I'm still in this uh, saying from Marcus Luttrell, uh, who's become a friend of ours. His motto is never give up. And what you're getting ready to hear right now to all you players out there is what it means to never give up. I mean, I've, I'm saying this. I'm getting goosebumps. I've heard Joe's story. I've, you know, I've, I've heard Joe's story in person. We were at the California Narcotics Officer Association several years ago. I got to hear the whole thing in person. Every time we took a break, Joe got a standing ovation. It was, I've never seen it. Cops aren't like that. 2,000 cops, largest narcotics officers conference in the world. And then the following year, Javier and I got to be the keynote speakers, and, and we got one standing ovation. Joe got it every time. <laughs> well, how about we hear from he, Joe now? <laughs> I think if he dropped his bottle of water on the floor, everybody gave him a standing, standing ovation. ovation. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm so excited to have you on here, Joe. You don't know what this means to us. Um, it truly is a story of survival, of sacrifice, what you've gone through what you've put up with, but the way that you've handled it. You've handled it as a, as a man, as a hero, as a compassionate human being. Uh, I don't want to take everything away from you, and I know your head's getting really big right now. And, and well, the podcast is over now because we've told them everything about Joe. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I can't shut up because I'm just so damn proud of you, brother. I, thank you for being here. I can't say it enough. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, and I really appreciate you guys um, considering me to be on this podcast. I'm very honored and humbled to be on it. Well, wait till the podcast is over. You might not be saying that. And by, <laughs> and by the way, you you know you're paying us a thousand bucks for being on this show, right? They told you that, right? 
Oh, I thought it was two thousand. I'm getting a deal then. Oh no, it's a thousand dollar deposit, thousand dollars when it's published, and a thousand dollars for the next part of the episode. There so you, you still owe us two grand. So anyway. <laughs> Hey, well, Joe, as we do with everybody, man, let, let's get your backstory because uh, to, we really need to understand your backstory to understand the events that are coming in. And these events are going to happen uh, in Afghanistan, uh, but this is going to be years later into your career. So let's talk about this because you had an interesting path to becoming a law enforcement officer. It was kind of like it was a family affair, wasn't it? Yes. Um, I ended up being um, third generation law enforcement in my family. My dad's uncle rose to chief of detectives in the Detroit Police Department. My dad's cousin was on the Detroit Police Department, and my dad was also on the Detroit Police Department, and he spent some years on a DEA task force there also. So my father never pushed me to go into law enforcement at all. Um, when I went to college in 1987, I went to a small school in southern Michigan called Adrian College, where I had the opportunity to play some football there. First went into school, I wanted to get into sports medicine. I wanted to be an athletic trainer. But before that first year was up, I was like, you know, I really want to go in law enforcement. I've always been involved in team sports. Grew up, like I said, playing football. I also played baseball and hockey. And to see my father interact with his members of his narcotics crew and his different groups he was in on the police department. I, I was longing for that, that team kind of mentality. I wanted to be part of something bigger than I was. So it really drew me to that. And, um, so I approached my father and I said, dad, I think I want to go in law enforcement. And he said, son, if you're going to do it, I would advise you to go in federal law enforcement. Just Due to the Why? fact, due to the fact that the retirement, you do a little better retiring as a DEA agent than a Detroit police officer. You're dealing with some of the bigger investigations, and you got the chance to travel and to go and do other things. Not that there's anything wrong with being a local police officer, and how things ended up happening when I graduated from college in December of '92. DEA was on a hiring freeze. So there goes that for right now. So that is a familiar story between many of the folks we've talked to, Steve, that were DEA. A hiring freeze couldn't get hired. I mean, this government, can they ever figure this out? Hell no. I mean, <laughs> you know, 40 years from now, you know, you got to have a budget available October 1st. How many years has it been since we've had a budget ready on October 1st? I always say, thank God the government's not a Fortune 500 company because they'd be. <laughs> Done a long time ago. We'd be a I third got a brilliant world strategy. You know how to eliminate crime? Let the government run crime and regulate it. Don't <laughs> run it into the fucking ground, man. It'll be over with. <laughs> hey, Joe, what, I, I meant to ask you a while ago. What position did you play in football? Um, in high school, I played fullback, and I played inside linebacker. Then when I went to college, um, it was just linebacker. So the first um, three years, we played a 5-2 defense. So I played strong side, inside linebacker. So whatever side the tight end on offense would line up, mm -hmm. I lined up. So I was like the bigger, bulkier guy. It's like run at Joe. So, And yeah. then the last year we switched to a 4-3 defense and I played middle linebacker. So that was kind of fun. I, I knew I was never going to be the tallest guy because my mom was only like five foot. 
Mm-hmm. So I hit the weights early, so I better be strong and fast. So yeah. I relied on that. The man delivering the pain. Yeah. Hey, give us an idea. Give us, uh, you know, so when you were in college, what, you know, how tall were you? What, what did you weigh? Um, when I graduated from high school, I believe I was five, eight and about one ninety five ish. And, um, I played in the, the Catholic league in the Detroit area. That's like the bigger private schools. And me and my partner, other linebacker, Tony Morasco, we were the two smallest linebackers in the league, but we were both all league. So, and I got to college. I grew a whole whopping inch and I got the five, nine on my tiptoes. And in the last couple of years, when I would report to camp, I was playing, I was weighing in around in the two, in the low two thirties, but I got stronger and faster every year. So that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you were like Michelle Linhart when she applied. She had to poof up her hair so she'd be tall enough to meet she the height requirement. She had to poof it up a quarter of an inch so she could make five foot four. <laughs> well, a kind of funny story about that. When my dad got into the police department, there was two um, Oriental gentlemen that were brothers, and the one wasn't quite tall enough when they had a um, height requirement. So he, I already see where this is he, going. He, he hit himself <laughs> on the head with boards to get that like extra quarter inch. Oh my god. To gosh. get him the right height on the job. No, I was just thinking maybe they just swapped out and the other brother was taller and he would go in for his other I I don't know if you're already hitting yourself in the heads with boards. I'm kinda of thinking that's a problem for the psychological test. I don't think they had one back then. <laughs> Thank God. Holy cow. Why do you have that twitch? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm a half an inch taller now. I look good, right? <laughs> Well, man, so, 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 I mean, you've always kind of, so it sounds like you've always been athletic and stuff. And so you, you wanted to join, um, couldn't get on DEA right away because of the hiring freeze. So tell me about the process for joining Detroit PD. You know, what was it like back then? Well, I came back and, um, so I didn't have a job at first. So I took a job working for Wolverine Human Services. It was a boys group home. Wait a minute. Wolverine? Yes. As in the Michigan Wolverines or Wolverine the X-Men? Character? No, Wolverine the Michigan Wolverines because it was run okay. by a former, several former University of Michigan football players and my buddy was working there. So I took a job there and then I was bouncing um, at a couple local bars to make ends meet because um, human services, you don't make much money. So, mm-hmm. And then Detroit Police opened up. So I applied and um, went in there and the process went fairly quick. It was. Uh, What's fairly quick? I say a couple months. Okay. And, and none of your bouncing activities uh, came to light. I mean, did you have any fracases or anything while you were a bouncer that you thought might have uh, caused you a problem in the application process? There was a couple. There was two two incidents <laughs> where um, um, I ended up getting sued, but the bar ended up getting sued for throwing people out, and nothing was um, really my fault. It's just one of those things. One of was a, a guy. Um, threw a beer bottle across the bar and cracked a girl in the head. And then our manager went over to him and he was being a real jerk. So the manager said he needs to leave. So I went to throw him out and a scuffle ensued. And I put him in a chokehold headlock and I didn't realize that he was unconscious. And I went to throw (laughs) him out of the door and he went face first into the cement. well, wasn't there a clue when he wasn't walking and you you're just dragging him like a puppy on a leash or something? Yeah, I mean, that, nothing, you know, nothing registered. You know, the adrenaline's going and everything. You know, so you know when the invest when the FBI came to investigate me, I told them it's not my fault; it was all their fault. 
That's I had the same story you did, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this man tripped and fell obviously several times. He couldn't hold his liquor. Uh, so, but th- none of that. So obviously that didn't keep you out. So you, it takes you a couple months. You get hired on. How many are in your academy class when you join? What's 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 your class? Ooh, like? I would say there was about thirty of us. Um, we were two sisters classes. We were ninety three as I got hired in February of nineteen ninety three. Ninety three B and C, and the A class was a Wayne County Sheriff's Office class, and they would go through our Detroit Police Academy at the time. So I think there's around thirty of us or so. How long did it take you to get through the academy? Who I think that academy was like about four months. That's pretty extensive back then. I mean, that's you don't you normally find city academies like that. Yeah, and I ended up graduating top academic in my class, which I didn't think was no no great shakes, you know, for a Detroit Police Academy. And I got this um, little plaque trophy, had the lamp of knowledge on it, like a little genie lamp and stuff. So cool. Hey, don't don't sell yourself short there, Mister. Yeah, don't do. <laughs> Because you're five nine now. I mean, you grew that. I know. Inch, so, uh, <laughs> and you still beat. You know, it, it was funny. The big muscle guy beat out this other guy in our class with a talk epidemic, and he's still on the job now. And he, I could never let him live that down. <laughs> hey, did they also hand out an athletic award? Did you uh, place for that if they had one? No, they didn't really have one. I, it's, you know, the PT consists of like a lot of push-ups, you know, all different diamond push-ups, you know, knuckle push-ups, this and that. You know, we did some running and stuff in academy, but it's formation runs, but it's designed for the lowest common denominator. So I wouldn't think the PT was any great shakes in that, but... The DEA Academy, I did get the top PT award, and I missed the top academic by half a percent. So oh. that was a, you know, show that I really wasn't that dumb. So, well, and that's a big deal, Morgan, because if you get number one in your class, you get to pick well, what post. As we you found to. out by Michelle Linhart. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yep. All right. So, hey, so, but when you got on the PD, though, I mean, when we talked, you didn't go. I mean, normally you start off on patrol, but you kind of went patrol. But they also because of. Uh, I guess your academic prowess and your physical prowess, they kind of put you in this high risk patrol thing, right? The tactical service. Section. Yes. They took um, like the top five people in our class in the sister class. And they put us in this tactical service section. And basically it's citywide. Um, you work high risk um areas of the precinct where they're having a lot of crimes or they're overwhelmed with runs and we would go in and help out and we would answer um, a lot of the priority one and two calls, you know, robbery in progress, shots fired, things of that nature. We also did the mobile field force for the department, any crowd control type of situations. And we also did the outer perimeter of barricaded, um, gun people. I guess you can't say barricaded gunmen anymore. It's got to be gun people. So, or something. Really? Some persons, you know, you know, something to that effect. So yes, I stayed on that for three years and then I've always um, wanted to try to get to the top or to whatever I was doing. So my dad's last couple years on the police department, he was on the full-time SWAT team there in Detroit called Special Response Team SRT. And what's crazy about it being a big city like Detroit, they did not have a full-time tactical team until 1987. Wow. Get out of here. That's a tough I mean, city. 
Look, I've watched RoboCop. I know how dangerous <laughs> old Detroit is. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's crazy. So he was on there. So I wanted to um, get on that team also. But back then you had to have three years on, you know, some type of patrol unit before you could go to our bureau. So I ended up um, trying out for that and end up making that team. And right around that time, that's when DEA came off their hiring freeze. So I applied and things were going pretty quick. And then all of a sudden I didn't hear anything. I'm like, I didn't get a letter or a phone call that I failed something. And so I'm like, Hey, what the hell's going on? But I was, you know, enjoying my life as the full-time SWAT team in Detroit. You get to, Let's talk about that real quick, real quick, before you go on to that. Um, what was the selection process like to get on to SRT? How, how tough was that? It was pretty tough. About They wouldn't have uh, necessarily a tryout once a year. Whenever they would need to pick individuals up, they would have a tryout. And it consisted of a PT test. And the PT test was pretty much like the Marine Corps PT test. You had a three-mile run. We had to run it under um, 21 minutes. We had push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups. And if you pass that, then you went on to a um, oral interview. You know, you had a lot of these guys show up for the PT test. You know, they had these $300 track suits, all this, you know, warming up. You're like, man. <laughs> and a little bit of bling and gold chain and everything. Like, th these guys are going to, you know, smoke me. But the problem was... You know, for three miles, you got you got to you got to run, you got to practice to do it in yeah. that time. You know, they go out burning up that first mile, and then second mile slowing down. The third mile, they're pretty much walking, and they're not, they're not passing the test. So it was um. Yeah. But they look good not passing the test in their three hundred dollar tracks. <laughs> oh, of course, like you know. I, I learned order. working with the seals. It's not what you know; it's how you look. <laughs> Oh, well, we'll hear about SEALs a little bit later. So um, now, was there what, what about shooting, though? I mean, I, obviously, shooting's got to be a part of SWAT. Did they have you qualify on the range or Not anything? beforehand, but while you're on the team, you had to qualify expert in all weapon platforms, which at the time we had um, a pistol. We were using the HK P7M13, which is a squeeze cocker 9mm pistol, um, MP5, Colt carbine and uh, shotgun. So once you were on, the training took about a year before you got fully certified with all the things. They wanted you to not only know all the different things, but also for you to be able to be an instructor in it also. Wow. So how many uh, at that time, uh, how many people were, how were you guys divided up in terms of the SWAT team? Did you have rotating shifts? Did you have a full time, you know, on somebody on all the time? How that um, Basically, we had three teams. And each team had, the teams were full. You had a sergeant and like um, six to eight officers on each team. But the teams weren't always full, depending on, you know, when we got, you know, people on the team and stuff. And when I was first there, basically we came in and worked days, um, nine to five. And then you were on call via pager if you had a call-out situation. And then as it went on, we had a team that had take-home cars and you had your go bag and everything in the car. So if there was a barricade, you could respond out right to the scene 
rather than having going to our base, pull all your stuff out, and then go out there. Waste a lot of time. Yeah, so we, we got that narrowed down. So um, DEA is going fast. I don't hear anything. Then all of a sudden I get a call one day, Mr. Bersani, you still interested in a job with DEA? I said, of course I am. They said, oh, well, we had lost your application. Now we found it. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> you lost an entire application packet, and now you want Javier and Steve to go to Columbia and search for Pablo. Come on. How does this work? <laughs> you know, it was crazy. You know, Steve can attest to this. You know, they want every iota of information ever happened in your life. You yeah. know, every neighbor, every house, every this and that. And I'm like thinking to myself, this is lost. Where was this at? You know, you got your, you know, first your, your top secret security clearance and everything. And so I'm just, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm going to roll with it, you know. So then it went fast. And then a couple months right before I'm getting ready to start the academy, um, we have a barricade. It was a mental individual that was former military and they would um, decide to shoot up the neighborhood every you know, so often we responded out there, patrol went out there and called a barricade. We got out there and set up a perimeter and got our armored personnel carry out there. And we started negotiating with them and they thought it would be cool to shoot at our armored personnel carrier and had one of our guys pinned down in the backyard, but he couldn't get a shot. So I was on a break. My team was on a break. We were like three or four houses down with most of our stuff out. And it was getting ready, just turning, getting, turning dark out. And she, the person had a car in the driveway and they're like, they just had a feeling that they were going to try to get in the car and get out of there. They're like, under no circumstance, do not let them get mobile. So <clears throat> she's got, um, shooting at the guy in the backyard. And so we jump in the suburban we have me and one of my partners and I'm in the passenger seat. He's in the driver's seat. We've got like half our gear on. What what is she armed with at this point? What you know? A pistol. Just a pistol. Okay. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what caliber it was. Probably a nine millimeter, I would assume. And sure as shit, she goes for the car. I'm like, oh crap! So we pull in behind her in the driveway. In the APC? No, in the suburban. Okay. So she starts backing up, ramming into us. I'm like, oh shit! So. Because now you got paperwork. Yes, and then all of a sudden I see a, a muzzle flash come through the rear window of their car. I'm like, mother effer, they're shooting at us. Oh, you can say you can say that. This is an explicit podcast. So, motherfucker, you're shooting at us. So, motherfucker, I'm going to kill Walk your ass. Me, so, I, I, I bail out of the right side of the um, Suburban, and I had my MP5, and I wasn't going to play at this point. So, hey, and Joe, real quick before you get that, let there's a lot of people may not know what the MP5 is. So just give people a quick overview of what the MP5 it's is. It's a Heckling Klotch, Koch submachine gun, pist, um, pistol type rifle thing. It's pretty compact. It shoots nine millimeter, um, 30 round magazines, and it can go single shot or fully automatic. Very accurate, very low recoil. At DEA, we had a similar weapon called the Colt submachine gun that when I first got on. Yeah, that sounds familiar, doesn't it, Murph? The, yeah, the MP5 was a sweet weapon. Yeah, and the Colt was the one that you were armed with with no ID in the middle of a street in Hialeah, Florida after your partner got shot, and you're wondering why are the cops pointing guns at me? Because you got a gun and no ID.
Yeah, don't they know who I am? <laughs> the only ba- I'm a white guy in a Hispanic the, neighborhood. The, the only bad thing about that um, Colt sub, the magazines weren't that great on that weapon, but it was a good weapon, the Colt sub machine gun too. So anyway, back back to your story. So you've got so she's just fired at you. You've got your MP5. What do you do next? Um, I bail out of the passenger side of the suburban. So I'm like off to the left of their vehicle. So I just put a fully automatic burst until my gun goes dry into her car. And my partner bailed out, and um, he was on single shot. He fired five or six rounds, and then I was like, cover me, I'm reloading. They're like, stop, stop, it's over, Joe, it's over. Uh, So um, needless to say, the person, uh, they did not make it. Um, they were shot in the head numerous times along in the body. But the only issue with that Colt submachine gun, that nine millimeter, how uh, I was shooting at her, she was like to the side of the A pillar on the side of the car. A lot of the rounds were just skipping off the car, not penetrating all the way through. Yeah, and that's that the nine millimeter, like you say, it's kind of a stock, but it doesn't it doesn't have the kind of stopping power that a forty or a forty-five does have, especially from a penetration standpoint. People don't realize too, if you if you shoot at a car at the windshield, a lot of times because unless you're directly like perpendicular to the windshield, those bullets will skip off the windshield. They don't go through Exactly. So I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready to start the okay. It's a total good shoot. I'm like, hope oh, this doesn't ink anything up. You know, so I, I just killed a mental. So, they, of course, they take your gun, you know, take your, let me keep my pistol. Of course, I didn't use that and took my submachine gun away. And then the next couple of days, I got to go to this, um, see a psychiatrist over at this, um, let's say, ghetto hospital in Detroit. So I'm sitting there. I just had to end up kill unfortunately had to kill a mental so i'm sitting in this lobby with all these crazy people and i'm like oh my god were you in uniform no it was plain clothes thankfully so so they didn't know how long did the invest how long did the shooting investigation take not too long i think i finally got interviewed officially um about a month and a half later but what's crazy in the police department in Detroit, unlike DEA, where you don't have to make a statement for so long, um, they take you down the homicide right after the event. They start typing up a arrest warrant for you. And um, union was pretty strong in Detroit. So you get your... No, wait, hold on a second. They they start typing up an arrest warrant for you? Yes, for murder. Why? I, it just was what they did. That gives you a nice warm fuzzy, doesn't it? Oh, Yeah. So you get down there. I have never heard, I'm sorry, I have never heard that anywhere from all the folks I've talked to, stuff, you know, you're involved with. I've never heard, you know, I understand you have to get interviewed sometimes, obviously, by the homicide or if they have a shooting team. They don't have a dedicated shooting team in Detroit? I'm not sure, so I don't want to tell you yes or no. I know we have to go down to homicide. Well, there now there are jurisdictions where they will present your case to a grand jury. But that doesn't involve an arrest warrant. That's just to go to a grand jury so you can get an official... So yeah, uh, okay. Clarence, you know, the grand jury fails to indict. There's no um, true bill. I've never heard of this either. Yeah. And anyway, keep so so you go. So what happens? So your union your union lawyer shows up, and you tell the union lawyer um, what happened, and the union lawyer will type your report up. Um, in Detroit, it was called a PCR preliminary complaint report, and you give your statement right then and there. And, wow. And, and that's how long after the shooting? Oh, this was. Hours. So, same day. 
yeah, same day, you know, we had learned that, you know, it takes, you know, a couple actually good nights of sleep before you actually remember everything in, in full, you know? So I know there, there was these problems, you know, where they want to interview right off the bat that sometimes people's stories tended to change. And it wasn't that they were lying or not telling the truth is you start remembering more as time goes on. Right. Cause after a shooting, it's a dramatic event. Well, uh- you see that too when you interview victims as a detective, when I interview victims that were there when a homicide happened or they're a victim of a sexual assault. It's like you, you got to be careful interviewing people because to your point, Joe, I mean, you get a statement. Somebody will turn that around on you later. Say, well, you missed this point here, but you said it later. So were you lying then or you're lying now? And they try and turn it around on you as opposed to how do memories work? And to your point, you got to give some time to decompress so that you can put everything into context. You know, and the worst thing as a law enforcement, you don't want to be giglioed where you can't testify anymore. Right. You know, you found to be a liar. And for folks that are listening in, uh, giglio was a finding that says, like, if you perjure yourself or if you do something, um, they have to disclose. That's information you have to disclose to defense attorneys. So basically, it means your credibility in court is shot, not only for future cases, but probably prior cases that you were on and that they can go back and revisit it. So, yeah, to your point, you want to make sure you're accurate. For a variety of reasons. Number one, because the truth is the truth. But number two is you don't want somebody twisting it and using it against you at a later day. Right. And and one of the things, one of the good things about DEA, they finally, not when, back when Kevin got shot, it wasn't so much like this, but uh, DEA updated its, its policies over the years. And so when a shooting takes place, the first thing we would do, so I, I'm a, I go back to Atlanta as an ace, assistant special agent in charge. One of my groups gets in a shooting, an early morning shooting on a, you know, O-Dark 30 search warrant and kills a guy. So I jump in the car. They call me. I jump in the car and head out there. And I told the supervisor on scene, you know, get the guys off site. So what we do is we take the shooters to, and there's four guys, four good guys shot at one bad guy. Um, They take them to a neutral site where really nobody has access to them. And it's so that they can get their mental, mental faculties back in order, you know. I pull up and it's probably 30, 45 minutes after the shooting. And I've got one guy who is visibly shaking. I got two guys that are nervous, but they're, you know, they're pretty well under control. And the fourth guy is sleeping in his car because it's not his first shooting, <laughs> you know, and, and then the district attorney is calling me. I knew him back at the time. This is down in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Uh, Danny Porter, who's a super guy. I love the guy. He called me and his investigators are out there and they're demanding they want the shooters and they want their weapons. Well, DEA's policy is you don't take a man's gun or an agent's gun until you have a replacement to give them. Bingo. You can't, you can't leave an officer. We had an officer too, a member's name, Harold Millarns. I was there when that went on. You can't, you can't take a weapon away from them and leave them unarmed, you know, for, a, for not, just, not just from a process standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint. Well, and that's, and Danny said, well, listen, can, uh, you know, we would like to collect their clothes. I said, Danny, you're going to get full access to these guys. And, and of course, his next question is when, when they're ready to talk, it could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. And his, his only question is that official DEA policy or is that you Murph? Nope. That's DEA policy. And that's the policy we're going to go by. And he said, understood. I said, I tell you what we'll do is we'll have an agent go with them and bag their clothes when they go home to change. How about that? And we'll turn those over to you. He was perfectly fine with that. As long as you can maintain a chain of custody. Yeah. So Joe, with you, um, once this goes through, how long did it find? Because this is going on right before you go to DEA too, right? So yes. what, what happens? What do you have to do? What kind of things do you have to report? What kind of clearance do you have to get? Because obviously being involved in a, uh, 
you know, a, a, a fatal incident right before you go to the academy is going to raise some concerns for some folks. They're going to want some documentation. What happens there? No, DEA didn't ask for anything. I don't even know if DEA even knew about the shooting, to be honest with you. No kidding. Well, then now they're wanting a memo from you, Joe, because you didn't tell them that when you got the job. <laughs> exactly. So I, I had to stay my first, you know, first, you know, two months of weekends in at the academy, and I, I couldn't go out and hang out with the uh, the other classmates. <laughs> oh man. Well, so from but, but beginning to end, so. You get how long was the uh, how long had you been cleared of the shooting before you went to the DEA Academy? A uh, couple months. So, what did you do between that and before you went to the DEA Academy? Did they pull you off patrol, you know, to keep you from getting in the shit? Um, well, or- I was on the SWAT team still, so you know they didn't have you doing any barricades for about a month. Yeah, and then after that month, I was right in, right out there again. Well, you had told us a story during our pre-call, a little bit of a crazy opportunity you had was that after the shooting or before chasing a guy in a stolen car <sighs> ended up on the porch of a house ended up oh that was before that was when i was in tactical service section yes um talking about different crazy things and um on the west side of detroit and detroit's kind of unique i guess maybe not the other cities like i grew up as an east sider so i knew the east side and i really didn't go on the west side that much at all so i didn't know the west side but tactical service section you work the whole city and sometimes a couple different precincts in one night so you don't know you know you bail out somewhere on the west side that i wasn't familiar and i jump a couple fences i wouldn't know where the hell i was at (laughs) so it's not a good feeling is it no, it's so, funny now, but it sure is a funny when it's going on. So I'm, I'm the jump person in the car, and that's the person that usually gets out and runs. And the driver of the car will try to cut the person off and go a couple blocks over, whatever direction they're travel they're running in, and try to cut them off. So I bail out. So I chase this person. We we hop a couple fences, and we ended up on the front porch of a house. So we're getting and tussling on the front porch, and somehow the guy gets to the door and gets in the house. So they get in the house, and we're in this living room, and there's probably about four or five people in this house, the person's family members, and they locked the front door on me. (laughs) That's like stuff you see in a movie. (laughs) So um, I don't know if this is really technically what I was supposed to do. I pulled my gun out. I said, unless somebody gives me an address in 10 seconds, I'm shooting somebody. Whatever works. You know, here's the bottom line. You want to go home at night. Exactly. So we got the address out, and then the cavalry came and arrested the guy for possession of a stolen motor vehicle and everything. But, you know, like you said, that's a pretty scary feeling. You're in a house uh, in the middle of the night with five or six family members. You got the front door locked, and you're by yourself. It's like, um, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> or what could go right? Yes. Well, the whole point, like everybody goes home safely at night. That's what you want to have happen. So Absolutely. you, so you survived that. Um, you survived a lot of stuff. Obviously, the last shooting there, and then you finally make it to the academy in Quantico. Yes, and that would be um, June of nineteen ninety seven. And that they were still having it. They hadn't gotten their own. It was still down at the FBI in uh, Quantico. So. I mean, things are are things kind of uneventful until the last four weeks. We're going to tell people why the last four weeks was interesting when you had to move to the Hampton Inn. But 
were, how were things, you know, during the Academy kind of uneventful? Did you have to write memos? What kind of you a, know, a couple memos, but you know, just for maybe doing <laughs> stupid stuff on practicals and, you know, practical exercises where it's like a scenario based type of thing. But for the most part, I was, um, pr- a pretty, you know, pretty good, you know, student. And I had been in law enforcement and actually I was very glad that I had local law enforcement before DEA. So, you know, it teaches you how to deal with people mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, get some street smarts and different things like that and some common sense and, you know, you're already loaded with some good stories going to the Academy. Well, boys, hold my bear. There was one time I chased a guy into his house. <laughs> Threatened to kill his whole family. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Like my first day on the job in Detroit, we got a gun and I got my first citizen's complaint too. Well, we stopped the car and I wrote a guy a ticket. He was an African-American gentleman. He went to the precinct and said, I only wrote, I wrote him a ticket because he was black. And I'm like, okay. Um, the, the city of Detroit is like 96% black. Um, believe me, if there's any white people in the projects or doing something, I, believe me, they're sticking out and I'm going to be on them like white on rice. But um, it was <laughs> the complaint, of course, was unfounded and this and that. But his <laughs> well, typically, you're, if you're doing your job, you're going to get complaints. Oh, yes. People don't like everybody gets complaints. Do. Yeah. Well, so let's kind of. Let's kind of get to this point of um, there was basically there was overcrowding at the academy, and they took some of you guys and they moved you into the uh, Hampton Inn. How was that uh, being moved into the Hampton Inn like that? Well, it was kind of good and bad. You got out of the off the academy grounds, but then the issue is, you know, to eat and everything else, you had to go back in for. So it was kind of. It was a little bit of pain in the butt, just me being a gym rat and stuff. The gym was over at the, you know, the FBI Academy and stuff, but it wasn't that bad. And we're going there, but it definitely was overcrowding. This FBI was running a lot of classes, DEA was. And then during the summertime, they have something what's called the FBI National Academy, where they have higher ranking officials in local police agencies and um, overseas police agencies. And they go through like a little mini type academy there so it was pretty full so they moved us into the hapton and everything is going good for the first couple weeks and then until you and maloney and a bunch of people go into town don't you well i didn't go into town (laughs) maloney was in town with um a friend that he had met there. See, here it is again, Murph. I, it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. It was the other guys. Oh, I didn't do anything. But I understand that mentality. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly right. And I wasn't doing anything there. I was minding my business when Maloney comes back to the parking lot. And what happens there? So um, we're sitting up in our rooms. And one of our classmates, I can't remember what, says uh, Maloney's in the parking lot. And this group of guys followed him home. And they're harassing him and beating on his car. We're like, oh, shit. So we run down there. And it's this group of these local thugs in this little gang. You know, I guess this local Fredericksburg gang. You put them in a real city, they would get swallowed up in two seconds. So, you know, we approach him, what's up? And I guess they had fouled him and they were harassing him and throwing bottles at his car and stuff. So we get down, you know, hey, what the hell's going on? So the, Did they have any idea who you guys were at that I time? I do not believe so. I bet they wish they did afterwards. <laughs> so we're like, you know, hey, what's up? You know, and then the leader of them, he puts his hand under his shirt like he has a gun. 
Bad not move. Good, that would have got you shot in the real world. Yes. And the problem was, you know, me and a couple other guys who had been police officers for a while were like, I'm like talking to my one buddy, buddy, Bill Warren, like, Bill, what do you want to do, man? You just want to rush these guys? What do you want to do? Like, I don't know, Joe. I don't know. You know, so he's acting big and bad. He actually goes into the lobby of the hotel and acting like he has a gun still. And I'm just chomping at the bed. I'm like, I want to beat the fuck out of this kid. And so one of our counselors pulls up at around this time. And I'm like, do you have your gun? He goes, yes. I go, get him. So we ended up chasing all these kids down, and I chased this one kid across this field, and I think it was like a 7-Eleven or a convenience store thing, and he's chasing them into their store and get them by the soda machine, and I start wearing them out and then, you know, dragging them out of there. And, of course, the police come, Stafford, Stafford County deputies come, and they end up arresting all these kids and this and that. And then, of course, we have to write a bunch of memos. Why did you do that? You know, I'm, hey, we're defending a classmate. You know, they had to act like, you know, they were in that really had to try to come down on us. We should kick you out of the academy. Oh, yeah. With two weeks left to go for defending a classmate, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I tried, yeah. you know, I tried to play hard ass and this and that. But, you know, nothing, you know, nothing ended up happening. But it's just, um, <laughs> just one of those things, you know. It's like. Did that guy actually have a gun? No. Now they all talked off. So what did Maloney do that pissed these guys off or what did they do that caused them to follow him home? Did you ever find out? I think they, you know, exchanged some words and it, you know, just being like these local little thugs, they think they run the place, yeah. you know, and I've seen it before, you know, numerous times where a guy's with a girl and you get a group of guys, they want to play, you know, tough and try to, you know, pick on the lone guy with a girl. And impress her. Yeah. I, yeah. Like that's never happened before, pal. Well, so you 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 escaped from the academy barely, you know, two weeks to go. Could have been the end of your career. We might not have been having this podcast, but you still make it. But here's the big thing, though. So because with everybody, you got to pick your post, right? So let's talk about what you put in for and what you actually ended up taking. Hey, okay, so you get close to the end of the academy and DEA, and you don't know where you're going. Um, they'll have a bunch of different openings. And, you know, you have so many people in your class, you have so many openings and you get to pick your first, second, third choice where you want to go. But you're not guaranteed to get any of those choices, especially if you're like an Hispanic speaker and there's a bunch of border spots. Guess where you're going? Probably more likely the border. So me being from Detroit, knew I'd have to move. So I kind of wanted to go somewhere. I was married at the time with a young daughter that the cost of living wasn't that expensive and nice weather. So there was three spots in Florida open. We had a West Palm or Lauderdale and a couple of Miami spots. And I had family that vacationed seasonally in Florida. So I'm like, yeah, I'd like to go to Florida. But my wife at the time, she had been previously married. So she had a, um, two small sons and we were going to have to move. Then she was going to have to share custody with their ex. So there was also a spot in Phoenix, Arizona opened, and I had never been to Phoenix. She had a grandfather that went there seasonally. I had a grandmother that went there seasonally. So I put in for Phoenix, my number one spot, and ended up getting it. So while I was finishing up in the academy, I sent her out there for her to find a house, and she did. And the first time I saw the house um, was when we pulled up when we moved there. <laughs> 
<laughs> you got ambushed. So what would you think of the house? It was a brand new house. It was nice. You know, it was a big upgrade from Detroit, let me tell you that, because when I worked in Detroit, we had residency, so you had to live in the city. So, you know, I went through, I sold my house. I bought it for, I think, like 40000 sold it for fifty in Detroit, and here I'm moving into a $100,000 house. I thought I hit, you know, hit, hit it big time, you know. Living large, baby. You're Go from Detroit fed, to Phoenix, man. You a fed. Hey, now, did you ever did you ever run across Sherry Oz down in Phoenix? Oh yes. Um, when she got hired from Phoenix PD, before she went out to L.A., uh, we actually rode together on a drug burn to mm. burn marijuana and stuff, and very, very competent and very interesting, cool woman. And she did very well for herself, as you guys know. She's a special agent in charge back in Phoenix now, and, and doing she a was kick-ass on job. Two episodes ago, yeah, she was. She is like you guys. Great sense of humor. Um, did just, she give you a stripper name? I think it was <laughs> like, like, like Kitty or something. No, no. <laughs> no I mean, for him, for Joe. Oh, we got to get Joe's stripper name. Okay, if y'all are listening, at the end of this podcast, we will have another contest to come up with Joe's stripper name. Since he knows Sherry Oz, uh, Murph, we came up with his stripper name. People guessed it, which is like SM Stud Muffin. I was thinking, you know, sadomasochism or something, you know? <laughs> stud Muffin. That's embarrassing. Please. That's embarrassing. It's, it's, not, it's not even true. No, that's what the problem is. It is true. I mean, I can't help it, you know? Well, that was cool. I mean, like I said, it's it's always a small world. So you go out to Phoenix. Um, what do you get wrapped up with in Phoenix? Well, okay, uh, so, so I get to Phoenix, and they're like, you're on the clandestine methamphetamine task force. I'm like, okay. Um, like, that's a good thing. I, 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 Did you have to apply for that? Did they no, just no. Yeah, okay, you? we got this new sucker, and we'll put him on this lab group, you know. And in Detroit, I never saw methamphetamine one time. You know, you, you know, of course, a lot of cocaine. Heroin, which they call in the city heron, and you know, mm-hmm. of course, a bunch of marijuana. So, like, okay, you're going back to the academy, Joe, to clan lab school. I'm like, I just left that damn place. I got to go back again. <laughs> as long as I don't have to stay at the Hampton Inn with Maloney, I'll be fine. <laughs> they they put us in another hotel in Stafford, you know. But oh. um, I ended up going with um, another agent, Rich Conine, who's retired now, also. Richie Conine? Yeah, he was down in Miami for a minute, I think, too. Yeah, we worked together down there. So um, we go there, go go back there, and most people are in the lab group like two to three years. I got st- stuck down there five years, and um, I think— Why, who did you piss off? <laughs> Sherry. <laughs> no, she didn't have any say at that point. But the problem is you do a good job. What are they going to do? They, they're going to keep, gonna you, keep there. you there. Mm-hmm. So on a conservative estimate— I've probably been in at least 400 methamphetamine labs. Whoa. Now, I have to ask you, did you ever run into blue meth that Walter White made? Because they made a whole TV series about it. No, and of course, every time I tell somebody I'm a DEA agent or was, oh, I watch Breaking Bad. I said, well, I did yeah. meth. And they're an expert I said, now. I did meth yeah. labs, you know, for umpteen years and had actually had to learn how to make methamphetamine and the whole nine yards i said i watched a couple episodes of that show but that was pretty much it yeah after that it was like yeah not real um yeah but it was a that was a good series I mean, no, it was a good it was a good series and it was a great let me tell you what the thing that hooked me because i for years i put it off wouldn't watch it 
but it's when they show the first five minutes and he's in that Winnebago with just driving in his underwear and things are going to shit. I'm going, okay, I'm hooked. I got to see what's going on here. <laughs> you just, you know, you just recognize it as being somewhat fictional. Yeah, it's fictional. Hey, but, but when you did those, when you did those clandestine labs, what's, what is the worst one? If you remember, what's, what's one of the worst ones you ever ran into the most danger, one of the most dangerous ones? You know, the problem is a lot more dangerous because these weren't chemists cooking here. You know, they get an inter- a recipe. They weren't rocket yeah. scientists. Either. You know, <laughs> they get a recipe off the internet and they're always trying to speed the processes up, you know? So, you know, they're putting stuff on open flames. Like, you know, you got things like gas line, antifreeze, denatured alcohol, Coleman fuel and what happens when the stuff splashes over you have an explosion and they knew that we would collect trash you know do trash runs for say so a lot of times they wouldn't want to throw their garbage out so they just throw it all in one room when you have acids and bases you know mixed together and stuff's off gassing and everything you know so it's just it's it's a mess it's it's just really a mess and kind of one of the funnier ones I probably was in is we had these two brothers. It was um, one of my partners' case, the Finocchio brothers. And they were, let's say, um, alternative lifestyle. Did you say Finocchio or Pinocchio? Finocchio. Okay. Like Pinocchio, but Finocchio. So... We go in there, they got, okay, they got all their stuff piled up and everything. And the one brother who was the cook would make the younger brother have do sexual acts with him to give him methamphetamine. Oh. So it was just pretty disgusting. <laughs> but sounds like something a trooper would do. <laughs> I'm listening, Murph. You know. God. And every meth lab I've ever been to, they have a dartboard. Every sex toy known to man and a bunch of pornography. Sounds like Merce Basement. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, That's why I call it a man cave. Um, uh, minus the Iron Maiden he has down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got that packed up to take to Florida. It's, it's going to be big down in Florida. Well, I got to pay extra insurance on that damn thing. <laughs> well, so, um, but now the other thing too, um, there reached a point too, and I wasn't sure while you were doing it, but you know, the EPA had to get involved because some of these things ended up basically becoming ecological disasters. They were so expensive to remediate. You had to get federal funds to do that. Did you run into any of those big sites like that? Well, um, every meth lab we did, you had to have a, um, we used a company called Envirosol at the time. There's a cleanup company that a contract with DEA and they would come in and dispose of all, you know, you take your representative samples and, photographs and they take all the other chemicals glassware if there's any carpet that was contaminated or drywall stuff they would tear all that out because you know the stuff would seek into the walls and the carpet and then we started bringing child protective services out there but a lot of time these idiots were cooking with their small children in there and we would bring cps out and they would take the kids to the hospital and do a full exam and nine times out of ten the kids would test positive for methamphetamine also Holy shit. So not only charge him with manufacturing the meth lab and this and that, charge him with um, child endangerment too. It's just sad. It's just sad. You know, as you know, you guys know, you know, in being law enforcement, the problem with a lot of these addicts, that's all they care about is their next high. The next hit, the next high. You know, everything else is kind of secondary. Their kids, their spouse, you know, their significant other, 
whatever it may be. It, it's just sad. And for me, having kid, you know, a child and having stepkids, it, it just it tore me up. It does. It really does. Well, are we boring you, Murph? Because you look like you're yawning there. I didn't sleep too good last night. <laughs> He's, he's getting ready to move, and shit is, it's going to hell in a handbasket uh, down there in Florida. Murphy's Law kicked in today. Yeah. Well, uh, but Joe, back to you. So uh, you did about 400 of those. What what finally happened to um, get you, you know, out of the uh, clandestine laboratory task force? I mean, did you just decide, I'm going to screw up and move up, or did you did they actually uh, decide to promote you into something No, else? they— Is that a shot at yeah, me? The, is that a shot the, at me? They ended up, um, you know— <laughs> reorganizing things and they moved me to a um, conspiracy group over back at the division. So when in, did this have anything to do with UFOs or was this, you talking about drug conspiracy? You know, it might, you know, you know, there's always, you know, when you're, when you're the duty agent, you know, you're taking calls after hours, you know, there was always that guy with the, you know, you put the electrodes in his head and everything and you're, you're tracking them, you know, and you tell him, you know, just make a foil hat and you'll be all right. Joe, I, I, just so you know, Joe, just cause you retired, <laughs> shit doesn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> we get people sending us messages almost every week. I won't tell you, I may have had a relation um, somewhere in the family. Whoa. Don't talk about your animals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, my mother-in-law gave my number out, which, I wish she wouldn't have done, but I get this call. I'm in sitting in San Jose, California one night at a pizza place. And I get this call and it says, Hey, this is me. And I'm going, that one, how'd you get my number? Well, number two, he's going, I think the FBI and the DEA are following me. I know it because they're watching me. And I, I'm sitting there going, well, what are you doing? Because he had been involved, I believe, with some um, illicit activity. I finally said, well, quit fucking dealing drugs. <laughs> and now it's very simple. Click. And don't call and, me again. Don't call me again. It's like, I told him, I said, trust me. You're not high on the list. The FBI does not have a dedicated team, nor does the DEA of, you know, 50 agents following you around, watching everything you do, pal. It just, you're not, it's not Or in the you get them, the duty agent calls and, you know, you're on the lab group and they come to you. Um, yeah, there's, I have a meth lab next door. How do you know? It smells like cat piss, the house. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's the old P2P method of cooking methamphetamine, which they haven't done in umpteen years. So it's probably not a meth lab. It's probably just cats pissing all over the damn place. And it was cats pissing all over the damn place. Yeah, right? we wouldn't even go out there. Or you get the real crazies that would call, and I know this is kind of wrong. Um, I would give them the number to the FBI. <laughs> 202-324-3000, I believe, is the main number to the FBI in uh, D.C. Don't ask me how I know that. So, uh uh, hey, that's always you always got to be armed with somebody else's cards. What's your name? Uh, Joe Smith. You know, give me a call here. Oh, I love it. I love it. Hey, so, uh, Joe, let's talk about now. Uh, so you transferred to conspiracy. How long did you work that group and what did that consist of? We worked um, mid-level cases, you know, that could develop into higher things. So um, I had a couple my meth lab cases that turned out to to go into bigger things. And one of the cases is he was dealing with a lab it was a pretty big sized lab. They're cooking multiple, multiple pounds at a time. And they had a source of supply for one of the precursor chemicals, um, ephedrine, and it was being supplied by an, um, an Arabic male. And then we got on him and then moving up and, we ended up getting to this big source of all this ephedrine pills. And it was um, actually a big multi, 
um, I would say jurisdictional investigation with um, DEA called Operation Mountain Express. Mountain Express, there was mm-hmm. Mountain Express 1 and 2, so I ended up taking um, that case in the conspiracy group, and it was an Arabic group, and we are trying to get up on a wiretap on them and to monitor their phones, and it wasn't going anywhere. Then 9-11 hit, and then after that, um, them being Arabic individuals, okay, you guys can get up on this phone now. It was much easier to get a Title Three, huh? Yes. Um, it ended up being a pretty good investigation. We ended up rounding people up from three different states and stuff, but it was good. You know, being in the Klan lab group, I think it was good for me because I had never really done narcotics investigations before. You learned how to be a basic narcotic investigator. You were dealing a lot with informants, writing a lot of search warrants, and me being a state and local officer, we had a lot of state and local officers in that group, and I didn't have the attitude, well, I'm the big fed, I'm smarter and better than you. I could get along with those guys, and it just really taught me how to, to be real good at doing basic narcotic investigations, which, of course, leads to being able to do better complex investigations later on. And, and Joe, that actually is a very interesting point because many of the people we've talked to, a lot of them had that state and local background. Murph, you did, mm-hmm. you know, uh, JP did, um, a lot of folks, and Sherry did, you know, Phoenix PD, a lot of folks have that. Jeff Moore, when we talked to him, Kansas City, Missouri PD, you know, yeah. a lot of folks had that state and local background before they went in and it served them well. What's one of the biggest lessons you think you from your times in Detroit that really helped you and served you well with DEA, you know, before 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 we get into the fast team stuff. But what what do you think is one of the biggest things that served you well uh, from your time in Detroit? Learning how to deal with people, you know, how to interact with people, you know, and having street knowledge too, you know, knowing the different terms and slangs for things and being able to you know, to talk with these individuals and not coming in like, well, I'm this big, bad fed and you need to listen to me and things like that, you know, having this ego trip. You know, my motto was I start off treating everybody like, you know, an individual and I'm going to give you respect until you deem otherwise. Right. But I'm going to start. So you, everybody gets a clean everybody gets slate. A clean slate with me. Everybody gets respect. I'm going to treat. Yeah, I'm going to talk to you like a person, whether you're the biggest, you know, worst homeless drug addict in the world or, you know, a multi-million dollar business person. To me, you know, they're all human beings and individuals, and that's how I'm going to start treating you. And I think a lot of people miss that is that that's really you know, most most everybody I worked with, and whether it was here or in the intelligence community or, you know, overseas or whatever else, you get a lot farther along when you start, when you treat if you will treat the people who clean the rooms and wait the tables with the same respect that you treat, you know, uh, somebody, a business person or a professional, you'd be surprised. And you know, the thing you're real surprised at too, and you talk about working state and local stuff, when you treat people like that with respect, guess what? Every now and then they give you a phone call. They go, Hey, I really appreciate the way you treated me. I think you might be interested in this information. I know where, I know where, uh, I know where, uh, Jimmy oh, most is. definitely. And I've actually had other defense, defense attorneys call me up. Hey, I got a client that wants to cooperate and we trust you, Joe. And you know, my, my forte in Phoenix was working informants. I was really good at it, you know, and I tell people, especially dealing with informants, don't ever promise somebody something you can't produce. Yeah, you only got to disappoint them once, and then they're not going to try. You start breaking that trust. If you set realistic expectations, 
uh, and you meet those realistic expectations, they'll trust whatever you tell them. And the thing is, you know, this is true in life. When they meet you, they're sizing you up too. Yep. And they're going to see, hey, can I trust this person with my life? Is this person an ass clown or do they look like they're squared away and they're good to go? And um, a lot of people, you know, when you're working in good informant, you're pretty much, you take on several hats. Not only are you your controller agent, you're kind of their counselor, their you mentor, know, you're their confidant, your mentor, yeah. everything, you know. <laughs> so when that phone rings in the middle of the night, a lot of times you've got to answer it. You know, when I told them, I said, you let me know what you're doing. If you're out there doing something you're not supposed to be doing and you get caught, it's on you. But if you tell me, hey, Joe, I'm going to meet so-and-so and I'm going to be, you know, at one, two, three Elm Street at this time, you know, I got your back. But don't let me catch you doing stuff you're not supposed to be doing. You know, you know, and, you know, we know these informants. They play the gray area all the time. Just don't get caught. Yeah. Yeah, and they'll dime you in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah, they will. Oh, yes. So how long were you in this conspiracy? I mean, so like you said, you were in the conspiracy group when 9-11 hit? Yes. What changed for you after 9-11? How much longer did you stay in that group? Because eventually we're going to talk about you getting to the FAST team, and we'll tell everybody what FAST is here in just a minute. But how long did you stay doing that before things changed for you? It was about a year and a half, maybe two years at max, and then I was sent over back to a HIDA group, high-intensity drug um, trafficking um, group, and an off-site location and worked mid-level traffickers again. And then I worked that for a couple of years. Then I was sent over to a West Side task force, which was housed by one of the West Side police agencies, Glendale Police and um, Arizona and we were kind of mid-level dealers um, in that one. And then, so, but you did that. So when did the opportunity, so was that the last assignment you had before you went to the FAST team? Yes. And, you know, things were changing. And like I mentioned earlier, any time I've been in any sport or any job or whatever, I've always tried to make it to the highest levels. And... um we knew the FAST teams existed. It stands for Foreign Deployed Advisory and Support Team. They kind of came about after 9-11 when the U.S. military went over to Afghanistan, and they soon found out the Taliban was getting their legal funding to run their terror deal um, through the production of sale of heroin. And there's a lot of people who cry, why yeah, you're over in Afghanistan? Well, Afghanistan is the biggest heroin producer in the world, and that's not the military's subject matter expert area. So they called upon us to help out. And at the time, we didn't have any teams like that anymore. We used to have a team, I'm sure Murph is familiar with the Operation Snowcap back in the day, when we were over in Columbia and Bogota and source companies for countries for cocaine, going after cocaine labs, but we didn't have that anymore. So D had started a team and they relied on several people that were over in Snowcap to kind of get these teams started up. So they did that and they had a selection you had to get on to make the team. And but in divisions, we really didn't know what was really going on there. Um, I had a buddy that went over there, his name's Tom Marble. And I called him one day. I said, Tom, what are you guys doing over there? I said, Are you guys just training or are you guys doing like real, real stuff? He goes, no, Joe. He said, we're working 
with the best units in the world. We're doing investigations that you would think and things that you would think DEA should be doing. So I said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. But the only issue, I was always a physically fit guy, but I was no young man at this time. I was 39 years old. And I heard the selection was pretty brutal. Would you compare it to, I think when we talked earlier, the selection process, is that kind of almost similar to the way that they did uh, buds, you know, and uh, for, for seals? Uh, that Was that kind of, it? was it that kind of intense? What they kind of did is they kind of took bits and pieces from different military um, special forces selections and kind of intermingled them together. So you had that type of intensity going on in it. Um, the first week we called it kind of like our hell week where you go in and um, you're tested on all these different things. And you have things that are called tier one events. Tier one is pass fail. If you fail one tier one, it's like different shooting tests, different PT tests, different ruck, a ruck march, a distance run, and things like that. If you fail one of those, um, you're out. And then you had tier two, which if you fail one, you're kind of put on probation and you could get removed um, if you fail more than one. So it's pretty intense and that's all done in-house. Did you have any advanced knowledge of what the testing was going to be like or did you just have to prepare for everything and show up? They gave you a basic outline of how to prepare. But the problem is that Okay, if you just had to do one of these events a day, not so bad. But you're getting hazed and beat down in between events. How much sleep did you get during that first week? Yeah. Like buds with the seals, you know, you're not getting much sleep, but they're feeding you real good. Um, and you're just getting beat down. And the thing is, you're going to fail something in that. Hopefully it's not a tier one once you're going home. But they want to see how you act or react when you fail something. Are you just going to give up and say, fuck it, I quit? Or are you going to try to keep going the best you can? They want to see the inner strength of a person. And um, it, was, um, it was intense. I say it was the hardest thing I've ever did in my life because I was older when I went through this. I'm like football in college. I was still a young whippersnapper. Um, I remember... My girlfriend met me in Phoenix at the airport to pick me up when I came back after that first week. And she's like, what the hell happened to you? You were actually able to leave? Uh, they didn't keep you there for the whole time? No. And I went through, you go that first week and then you go to your additional training. But sometimes depends on what military units they have available to train you. Usually the second phase is done by a Navy SEAL team or Army ODA Green Beret team. If they're ready, you stay, but they weren't ready at the time and they weren't sure who was going to do ours, um, the SEALs or the Green Beret. So I got to go home and then I proceeded the next day to go to the ER because my <laughs> foot was really, really infected and, and I pretty much lost every toenail on each foot and I had a blister on every part of my foot. I was beat to shit. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you get a, a, a big accomplishment, you make it through there. We started, I told you guys in the pre-interview, we started like, what's 50-something people and only 11 made it to the end. That's what, So in Hell Week, you started with 50 and only 11 made it out of Hell Week? Actually, 12. Actually, there was a couple more, but a couple more didn't go to the second phase. And then um, 11 of us 
at the end got picked up on teams. How many how many didn't make it because they like failed tier one? If you remember, how was there a way like you do with buds? You know, they go in and they ring the bell. You know, hey, I'm out. Was there was there a way for somebody to say, look, I've had it, I'm done? Well, you could do yeah, you could drop on request, and we had that too. Um, the, the, you, we lost a good number in tier one events. That's probably the majority. Um, and then you got other people that said, Hey, it's not for me. And then we had a couple that made it through everything that first week, but then you do like a panel interview afterwards and the cadre did not move them on to the next phase because they didn't feel they were team players. And we also, um, we had to take like a psychological test and kind of IQ test online before we went. And then while you're there, they give you another IQ test under stress to see how you react. And you also had to do peer evals. So halfway through and at the end, you had to list, okay, these are the top three people in the class and why, and these are the bottom three people and why. Because in the past, they had issues where people just flew through all the physical events, but were just assholes, and they couldn't live with people in a confined space. So you could get weeded out. You could get peered out also. So did you put yourself in the top three? Um, you couldn't vote for yourself. Okay. Well, that dog. But, 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 but of course, I would have, you know, of course. You know. <laughs> Do you know who I am? I was a half a point away from even being the top, you know, brainiac in my academy class. God dang it. So you were, were you the oldest guy in your class? No, we had one other guy that was older than me, Brett Hamilton. Did he make it? Yes. He was a um, hardcore Marine officer and he actually got shot in the same bazaar I did three or four months before I got shot. Oh, that was the Forrest Gump wound, right? He got yeah, shot he, in the butt? Yeah. Um, Beast um, jumped up and bit him in his buttocks. <laughs> right here, sir. <laughs> before all I can remember is that movie, Forrest Gump. Where'd you get shot? Well, right here, Mr. President. Boom. And shows him. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, what was the toughest part of that hell week? <sighs> Probably for me, okay, we did a lot of swim testing. And I always grew up in a pool. We had a cottage on a lake. But we had to do a lot of distance swimming and BDUs, your battle dress uniform, your military fatigues, a lot of treading water for long periods of time. And th the thing with that is muscle does not float. And I'm pretty muscle bound. And I had to really learn how to relax. Because the worst thing you can do is you get yourself all worked up and then you lose all your oxygen and then you can't breathe, you're done. So I had to really learn how to relax in the water. Wow. And you, like I said, you grew up around water, right? So, but this was a lot. Were you guys, um, where did they do your Hell Week at? Where was this training at? Um, Quantico, Virginia at the Academy. And we used the Marine Corps pool and then the FBI pool also. The FBI and pool, they have lounge chairs and like Mai Tais for you guys? Oh, of course, you know, yeah. of course. And hula girls too and hula everything, girls. you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, which are, which are the agents that washed out. So that was their way back into the academy. They had to do a pool service. No. So um, once you got out, how long was it before you went back for your additional training and who did that training? It was like three or four months and then um, the Navy SEALs did it. So we had to, we went back to Quantico for a week and just got up to speed on some things and they made us do another PT test. And then we went down to Little Creek, Virginia to train with, um, people from SEAL team two and 10 
in the Navy SEAL trade at, which is their training cadre. So we were saying then the um, Navy Lodge, they're on base at Little Creek. And I remember standing, um, getting up ODAR 30 for the first morning outside the hotel for PT. And um, they run straight down to the ocean, in the ocean, out of the ocean, roll around in the sand, sugar cookies. You know, like, what the hell? But we understood this is going to be like the training phase, not getting kicked in the nuts all over again. And then we were later told they were told to treat us like we were in buds. So like, oh, shit. I've already been through this. I lost all my toenails in the blisters. Exactly. My feet finally healed. You know, here we go again, you know. And plus, we know Afghanistan's surrounded by oceans. Exactly. You never know. You, you never know when you might fall into a big pool, you know, or a pond over there in Afghanistan. That's where all the goats go to hang out at, on, you know, on a Friday night. Oh, yes. And, the, and on Man Love Thursdays. <laughs> Ahmed and his uh, goat goat rope. Oh boy, this is going to go downhill fast. So, um, but you, so you got, but you made the fast team in uh, 2009. But it took quite a few months, right, to finally get your selection. Well, okay, we, you figure, okay, we started the hell week February end of February 2009. Went back, then early springtime we did our our second phase. And then we went back to our divisions waiting to just because you make it through everything, you're put on a list and then the fast team can pick and choose who they want. How was a fast? So give us the, the structure of a fast team. How were they organized? You had um, originally you had three teams, Alpha, Bravo and Charlie. It was made up of GS and then an Intel analyst, a group supervisor. Okay. He kind of like runs each individual teams and in DEA. He, a group supervisor will run each individual group. So if we were talking like a military rank, what would a GS kind of be? Ooh, probably like a... Um, More like l- a lieutenant or something? Lieutenant or a, or a captain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I would say. Um, so you have a GS, you have an intel analyst, and you have um, usually you know, anywhere between six and eight agents on a team. And um, in Afghanistan, we'd have a fast team over there at all times. And a tour would last approximately 128 days, plus or minus, you know, some days. Only one team at a time? or Yes, one team at a time. Okay. So it was getting to wear on the guys. Um, so they decided to expand it into two more teams to add a Delta and Charlie team. And we're also going to start doing some stuff in the Western Hemisphere also. So... Delta and Charlie were going to be made up of some former fast team members along with some of us new um, selectees. And I got put on Delta team, which was one of the newer teams. And I show up, um, we got picked up in end of October of 2009, right during the week where we had one of the military choppers crash after leaving a mission, crash into a mountain and we lost three DEA agents in that helicopter, two FAST team members, um, a Kabul country office agent for DEA. That's we had a country office in Kabul that did a lot of the investigations. And um, the FAST team was kind of the action arm for them. We were kind of like DEA's overseas tactical team. And then we lost um, a good Real number. Quickly, yeah, let me let me um, honor them, too, because I did some research on that. So it was Chad Michael, 30 years old, from Quantico, Virginia. Michael Weston, 37, from Washington, D.C. 
Forest Lemon, 37 from Woodbridge, all around that area. Um, but also seven military members went down with that. It was one of the MH-47 uh, Spec Ops version of the Chinook helicopter um, being flown by the 160th uh, Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which they call the Night Stalkers, the SOAR. Um, these were the guys that also flew the Blackhawks uh, for the uh, Osama bin Laden raid by SEAL Team 6 uh, over in Abbottabad. So, I mean, so his army was the one, but yeah, I guess it was blackout or it was brownout conditions kind of really bad. And they went right into the side of a mountain. Yeah. And these are the best pilots in the world. Pretty much in that CH-47, everybody in, in the front of the helicopter got killed when it hit the side of the mountain. And so it was kind of, kind of a somber experience. You know, you're showing up for, you know, your first week, you're going to Dover, Delaware to meet the bodies and. You know, arranging all the, you know, going to all the funerals and things. So it's like, okay, this stuff is for real now. It's, you know, it's sinking in. How did that impact you guys? I mean, you're just coming up to speed. You're getting ready to deploy. And then you hear this. You're going, maybe I'm not going to get taken out by some Taliban, you know, or terrorist. Maybe it's just going to be a damn accident. And and that was a very realistic possibility, you know. And um, I was in um, one helicopter landing that they called it a hard landing and it was pretty much a crash when you have to have the helicopter sent back to the united states because it's pretty much destroyed that's a crash you know i, I had a pilot tell me one time there's two kind of landings there's a good landing and a great landing so a good landing is when you can walk away from it a great landing is when you can reuse the aircraft again yes <laughs> makes a lot of sense <laughs> hey but let me tell you the fact that you can walk away from it any one of those makes that a good landing but uh uh Boy, that, but that, again, that's just kind of got a, you know, um, real quick side story. Um, but when I was doing this stuff for the State Department, their anti-terrorism assistance program, you know, we had been going to places like I was in Pakistan, I was in Turkey. But then they said one time they had, an, uh, they had a, uh, you know, an opportunity for some training down in Kenya, you know, down on one of the game preserves. I'm going, man, that would be awesome to go down there. You know, I'd love to go down there. That'd be beautiful. Conflict schedules couldn't go. The guy I was had developed the training with that I taught in Pakistan and Turkey and places like that, he goes down there riding in a van from the airport. They crest the top of a hill, vehicles on the wrong side of one of these dirt roads, hits the van, kills him, two other people in the car, severely wounds one of the other guys. And it's like, man, you, I mean, it's it just if it's your time, I guess it's your time. But man, nobody would have thought an accident in Kenya would take out people who weren't on, the, you know, we weren't doing any direct action stuff. This wasn't that kind of thing. Yeah. And I tell you, you know, you guys have been overseas and a lot of these third world countries driving a car is taking your life in your own hands. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's nuts. It's more dangerous than walking around with a target on your back, you know, in downtown, you know, Kabul. Oh yeah. And I spent some time in Honduras. It was a nightmare over there driving in a car. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute, too, because that was between your two deployments. But let's let's go back. Let's talk about now. Let's set the groundwork for your first deployment, your fast team deployment. Like you say, usually 120, 128 days. Um, we kind of established why the DEA is over there because of, of Taliban, right? But there's another issue let's talk about, too, because you're going over there. You're not it's not just like, hey, we're the DEA. We're showing up with our badges. You're in a you're in a country that is under armed conflict at that point. You know, this is a theater of war. So. You guys are actually working with uh, the DOD on this, right? So talk to us now about the relationship between DEA and DOD, the kind of things you had to get, like getting the briefings by the State Department, getting additional security clearances, you know, working with the Green Berets. So let's start setting the stage for what does this really look like when you start going into country? Yes. Okay. 
since we're working with other military special ops units, uh, whether it's U.S. or par partner forces, uh, not only, you know, DEA, you have to have a top secret clearance. We had to have an SCI top secret clearance. So that entails us being read on to additional programs. And for the folks that are listening out there, when we say SCI, we mean secure compartmentalized information. So you have you have like confidential, secret, and then top secret. And then SCI, even if you have a top secret clearance, you don't have, it's still what they call need to know, right to know. Just because you have a TSSCI, unless you actually have a need to know, you don't get read onto that program. So, I mean, it's a higher level clearance. Now, did you have to take a polygraph for that one? No, just the original um, polygraph that, you know, you had with DEA, but then you had to sit through a briefing and they had to read you on and you had to sign paperwork and saying you will not disclose any of this information, yeah. you know, so all this BS where you get some of these politicians in the past. Well, I didn't know what I could do. And oh, believe me, they make sure you know what you can and can't do. Believe uh -huh. me. And you have to <laughs> sign your name to that, too. You sign a document that tells you that, yeah, that's, that's actually one of the pieces of evidence they use when you see these FBI cases and affidavits. They pull out their uh, non-disclosure form that they signed where they said they said they would do this, and they did exactly. Like the, like the dumb douchebags that him and his wife stole some state secrets. Uh, there was a kind of a false flag operation with the FBI. They had a data card hidden in a fucking peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yes. Brilliant. Anyway, we digress. So let's go back to that. So you've got your clearances. Um, what kind of briefings do you get from the State Department? Just um, the different programs you're going to be working on over there. And you get a briefing um, on the culture. And, you know, these are some of the things they believe in, they don't believe in, you know, to try to fit in better with the people and not to potentially offend anybody and stuff like that. And you do a pre-deployment workup where you get with your, your new team and you – you know, practice all your different military skills and to include um, building entries or room entries, we call it close quarter combat, um, fighting out in the open, which is called land warfare, and just re refresher on um, all the different types of um, explosive devices. And everybody's up to speed on how to shoot all the different military weapons because on the fast team, you know, you pretty much use everything the military uses. You're not pigeonholed into these, you know, certain weapon systems. You know, you're, you know, you have belt fed machine gun, you know, grenade launchers, you know, C4 plastic explosive, you know, everyday carry stuff. Yeah, hand I grenades. Walk around all the know. time with my, you know, M203 grenade launcher, you know, slinging on across my back. So I show up. They're like, Joe, you're a big guy. Why don't you carry this belt-fed machine gun? I said, you get to carry the heaviest piece of equipment we have. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, wife said, well, you know, yeah, I'm strong, but I'm old, and that thing is still freaking heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's fun to pull the trigger on one of those, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and it's hell of a weapon to have in a firefight. But you learn tracers go both ways, and they're going to try to take out the machine gun. So you don't want to sit still too long with that weapon either. You want to try to move your position. Fire and move, fire and move, fire and move. Shoot, yeah. shoot and move. That's yeah, it. so um, now did you have – but you talked – even though you were trained by the SEALs, you ended up actually doing some work as well with the Green, D, the green Berets. Uh, was that part of your initial uh, fast uh, deployment? Yes. Um, but every time a fast team went over there, the optics changed a little bit. Um, so the first tour I went over there, our team, we were based out of Kandahar Airfield in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And we were. And what is so special about Kandahar? We got there in Panjway. It's the birthplace of the Taliban. 
There you go. And guess who helped create the Taliban? The Pakistani ISI, Inter Services Intelligence. Thank you very much, folks. And then I think Bill Gates. (laughs) I hadn't heard that one, really. (laughs) Uh, Just a joke. Oh, well, he had the money to do it, so you know, you never know. You know, buy more windows. Buy windows. Yeah, so they also, that was a big area where they were um, growing the poppy and, and producing the heroin. And a lot of people don't understand, especially in the mountain areas in Afghanistan, you get snow in the winter there. So they have what's called a fighting season and a growing season, and that's usually early spring to, you know, right about you know, mid-December. So that's when all the activities happen and that's when most of the heroin is being produced. So luckily or unlucky, I got to go during the middle of fighting season, both tours. So you're pretty busy. And um, so it's pretty, um, a lot of action going on. We'll say that. Let's talk about you flying in for that first time. Had Had you been in a foreign country prior to that? Other than, uh, yeah, yeah, your first fast team deployment. Have you ever traveled outside of the United States where you went to Afghanistan? Um, growing up in Detroit, I was Canada a lot, playing hockey. That doesn't count. And Come on. Mexico on a Mexican Riviera cruise, so that was, doesn't really count. Uh, yeah. That no, doesn't count. But, Come but on. that's the first time. So we're flying into Kabul Airport. We land, and we're like, okay, who do we meet? Who do we, you know, somebody going to be picking us up? And Is there a McDonald's here? Can I get an Arby's? <laughs> Starbucks? You'd be surprised. On, on the bases airport. like Kandahar, you had like a pizza hut there and all kind of stuff. It, it, yeah, but at Kabul Airport, there's nothing there. You no, and we're like, who's picking us up? So you get these guys trying to make money, these local Afghanis. You're like, where do you need to go, sir, sir? You know, you know we need to go to you know, our Kabul country office, you know, NIU over there. Oh yeah, we will get you there, but they're just trying to. They're just bullshitting you. They have no idea. And then, luckily, um, some of the agents from the office came, and okay, you know, come with us, you know. But you know, they're always. Did you fly in commercial or military? The first year commercial, we um, landed. Um, a couple of guys in our team already went went over there earlier. We flew um, commercial air from Dulles to Frankfurt. Had like eight an eight hour layover in Frankfurt, so we grabbed a cab and went to one of the local pubs and got some bratwurst and some beers, and then we flew on Safi Airlines from there to Kabul. I had to fly coming out of Islamabad, Pakistani scare. It was an old <laughs> seven forty seven. They actually made us move. We were in the nose cone. They made us move, moved one of the seats open up because it goes down into the fuel tanks in the bit. And this guy's carrying this stick to measure the amount of fuel. Oh and Jesus. I'm going, we are fucked, people. <laughs> oh, that's another Warren. Oh my God! It's like I'm glad when we landed, touched down at London Heathrow. I got off and I kissed the ground. I said, "I've never been so glad to be in London." My God. Anyway, but again, we digress. So, hey, um, talk about to your uh, as you got over there. How did you guys get set up to do your operations and stuff too? So, were you assigned? Because the one thing I was interested in before, too, we talked about this with Murph and JP, like when they were down in Bogota, they had to get special cards to carry the carnets, right, to carry your weapons uh, down there. How did this work with you guys in country in Afghanistan? We um, didn't really need any of that there. We we were under the Department of Defense when we were over there, so we had to actually get a Department of Defense common access card. The bef- cat card, yeah. Cat card before we went over there, so... We pretty much had to follow the um, their rules of engagement. Now, we'll speak about in Honduras. We had to have the paperwork to carry weapons over there, and you had to carry it on you. 
Right, and we'll talk about that. You know, like say after the first tour, but let's talk about the, let's talk about the rules of engagement at that time. What were, you know, one of the biggest issues they had were the ROEs, what they call the rules of engagements, would change based upon area commanders, you know, or theater commander. People would say, well, it's it's this for this, but it's that for that. And I think one of the things Petraeus did, he kind of came in and he said, hey guys, got to be one one set of rules, right? Rules of engagement. What were the ROEs for you while you were over there? Basically, if um. A person presents a weapon, you can shoot them. If you're getting shot at, of course, you can shoot at them. Um, so it it wasn't, it was, I would say, strict enough, but not overbearing. You know, it, it fell pretty much into that, you know, you know, medium area, which wasn't too bad. The only thing, go ahead. No, I was going to say you just—it's a little more latitude than what you might have had in the states. In the states, if you were still a, a you know, Detroit cop, might have been just a little bit different. But over there, if you're a military-aged male with a weapon, that's kind of an indication that you might be a uh, a bad guy. Oh yeah, and once a firefight started, and you're you're up there still popping up and down. If you're not shooting, you're spotting. So you know it's kind of fair game at that point. How long did it take you after getting in country to get into your first firefight? Probably it was on my second mission, probably within three weeks. So talk about that mission. So we um, fly in. It was this area um, that was a real hot area, bazaar. And bazaars are kind of like outdoor flea markets there. And um, they sell everything from, you know, toiletries and stuff to opium poppy to um, produce heroin, chemicals and equipment to manufacture heroin, um, bomb making, ID materials, along with small arms. Holy cow, this is like the Costco of Kabul. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like outdoor, you know, it's like outdoor storage facility with rolling doors, you know, you know, garage doors type of things. And, and, um, you know, you're in trouble or you potential problem when you bring two trauma surgeons with you because the, (laughs) because the IED, the improvised explosive device threat was so high in this bazaar there. So, um, we, um, get staged up to go and we're, I think we flew on on three CH 47s and we were with the green brace. Um, a, um, ODA twelve thirty one is the first group out of Washington State, and um, we're landing. And we try to go in at night to use our technology with our night vision and lasers, because the enemy usually doesn't have it. So we try to get any advantage we can. So we land, and um, we're going to go take this area and stronghold, and then during the day we're going to start searching. But it's easier to see stuff, especially potential IEDs and stuff during the day. Um, when you're not on night vision. So our helicopter lands. Uh, we hear another one land, and we can't get a hold of the helicopter next to us. But we see a big dust cloud over there. That helicopter had a hard landing crash. Well, that was a crash. The helicopter wasn't going anywhere. So Was it hit by uh, ground fire? No, or what it just crashed into the ground. You know, kind of pilot error. Um, so at first they're like, okay, we need to move to the craft. No, we can't. What if it blows up? So we were in charge of setting up a medevac exfil uh, for the injured um, people on the helicopter. And 
we did that and everybody ended up surviving. Thank God. And some people were bought kind of bad. Um, but, and then we move into the bizarre area. We stronghold. And then during the day we start searching. So my group, um, was going to be the group to search the bazaar. So we had, um, a person from Navy, um, bomb ordinance disposal out there, EOD. And we just make it a little bit into the compound and they're like, everybody stop. And they had a command debt wire that was wired up to stuff all around us. And they're like, we don't have enough stuff to <laughs> take care of all this. But luckily they had heard over the radios because we'd monitor their radios, blow it, blow it. They tried to blow it, but we had a Spectre gunship coming the night before and pound the area with rounds and it severed the command wire. So they couldn't blow it. All right. So yeah, let's explain this a little bit better. You're talking about multiple IEDs located on the, like the entrance route that you guys are coming in, right? Entrance route in, in, in all like, you know, the areas where people would congregate. And, and that Spectre gunship, those they used to call those spooky or puff the magic dragon. Those things are C1. They are an awesome platform. 105 millimeter howitzer, 30 millimeter guns. You know. Yeah, they actually have a, a, a recoilless right, like you said, cannon in them damn things. Mm -hmm. And and just it flies, but it has to bank. It has to bank because when it's firing, it has to be at an angle to absorb the impact of that uh, howitzer, basically that recoilless. Because it, it pounds a lot. But, man, when you watch some of those videos that come out of there, when they fly that Spectre gunship, it rains it rains hell. Oh, it yes, it does. Definitely somebody you want on your side. <laughs> it, you know, so at the time, we didn't know how much, you know, it, that the command wire got blown up. So they didn't want us messing with that. It wasn't worth taking the chance in there. So we strong held, and they had to call in air to blow up the other helicopter. And then we started getting shot at um, from the surrounding area. And then we had to fire back and stuff. And don't know if we killed anybody or not because you, it's hard to do battle assessment damage there because, you know, you can't stray too far from your position because you're out in the open and everything. But um, everybody ended up making it out of that, for, that, that mission there. Wow. I mean, and that had to kind of, that had to be, like we said, it may not be small arms fire. It could be just, or, you know, could not be getting shot. It could be just an accident that takes you out like the, the helicopter, you know, from the first time. Yeah. And it's funny because one of the, <laughs> the Green Bay medics, he was trapped in there. And um, one of the crew and helicopters said, just leave him, just leave him. They're like, no, we can't, we're not going to leave him in there. You're not going to leave Whoa, him. Oh, yeah. Man. Oh. So, Joe, how much of your prior SWAT training and everything translated over to this new um, training that you got from the military, from the Green Berets? I mean, was there some translation, you know, did, I mean, did it help you at all or did you have to basically learn a whole new set of skills? Well, it helped in like the room clearing and stuff because I was really good at that and like the tactical shooting. But a lot of the other military skills like land nav and um, land warfare and stuff. I didn't have a clue on and a lot of the guys in the team had been prior military and stuff. So they had a good idea how to do that stuff. So me, I basically had to learn on the fly a lot and it was either sink or swim. So if I didn't keep up, you know, Hey, I got left behind and um, I'm not going to get picked up on a team. 
I think one of the toughest things for you over there, and tell me if I'm wrong, it was figuring out all the damn military acronyms. Oh, very, very true. Like everything, you work for the government, they've got an acronym. The military, it's even worse. And lucky my partner over there in Afghanistan I was working with, was his name's Travis Brooks, and he was a major in the, the Army. He was um, active duty, and then he was um, a reserve. So after the fact, if I didn't understand anything, I'd be like, Travis, what does that mean? Because I didn't want to look like I didn't want to look like an idiot in the middle of a briefing. Um, excuse me, um, what does that mean? You know, even though they say yeah. no question is a dumb yeah. question, but in a circumstance like that, they expect you to know what the hell is going on. And uh, I, yeah, or I didn't want to look like an idiot. Out. So when you have military guys and all they do is talk one three sentences of acronyms, you have no idea what they said. They've just given you the entire battle plan for the next ninety. Days. You know, and over there, all our operation yeah. plans were all military generated operation plans. It's um, a little bit different than our DEA ops plan. So, your first tour, how much, how long did did you end up riding? About 120 days. Yes, um, we got there. I think end of March and went home. I believe mid August or so. So yes. So during that time, uh, did you lose any military folks? Did you lose any of the folks that you were working with? We didn't lose any military folks. We got some injured, and we got some fast guys injured, and but we lost some partner force Afghanis, I think, like maybe four of them. And did you have any uh, other countries that you guys were working with? I know later we'll talk about some of the Aussies, but uh, during your first tour, did you work with any other uh, uh, coalition countries? We were going to do um, one operation with British SAS which is one of their special ops, but the um, mission got canceled. We, we lost our air platform that was going to fly us in there. So that ended up getting um, a military word can't canceled. So, so how, what did it feel like when you uh, boarded the plane to head back home after that first tour? Oh, it was like, thank God I'm coming home. Um, you know, we had some really <laughs> close calls. In fact, our, last mission of that tour we actually got caught in a near ambush and a near ambush means you're in hand grenade throwing range and actually hand grenades were being thrown back and forth um you know it's kind of one of these things where it was um we're going to this area called hazi madad and um they had a taliban hospital over there and we had a military combat outpost over there and they had um, several of these old Russian anti-aircraft guns called dishkas. And when coalition forces would fly over, they would get shot at by these dishkas. And also they had um, a lot of narcotics activity going on over there also. So it's kind of um, eerie. You're sitting in the briefing the day before and you're like, okay, we're going in with three CH-47 helicopters, and there's a high probability that one is going to get shot down on infill when you guys are coming in. I'm like, oh, shit, hopefully I'm not on that one, you know? And then the <laughs> Rangers went in there a couple days before us, and they took some casualties, too. So we were going in twofold to find the dishkas and to eradicate their narcotics. Scale of one to ten on your first tour, how how many, you know, what percent, you know, what what do you think you did in terms of achieving your objectives? Did you hit a one, a five, you know, ten, like you hit every objective you're after? 
the problem is that first tour, these areas were so hot we were going into. There was a lot of narcotic stuff, but we get bogged down down into these serious firefights. And the military unit we were working with, the units, they were basically doing movements to contact, which means you go and pick a fight and see how the resistance is. You hold it for a day to up to three days, and then you send regular conventional forces in there. So we got bogged down into a lot of these prolonged fights where sometimes we couldn't search real well. Wow. How many, how many, on that first tour, how many firefights do you, do you calculate you might've been in? I would say probably that first tour was on about 10 missions or so, 10 to 12. And only two times I did not have to fire my gun, you know, because you got to figure you're behind enemy lines. This is their money. So they're going to fight like hell to hold on to their money. And the problem was the area we were in the first tour, Panjaway, a lot of emplaced IEDs. So a lot of people were getting messed up with IEDs. Did you guys ever get hit with IEDs? Um, yes, that's how we lost a couple Afghans. And actually, my good buddy, Travis, and one of the ODA team sergeants, we had got a guy hurt, and they were trying to set up a uh, medevac exfil for them. And um, the ODA team sergeant tripped the tripwire and set off an IED. Um, it was a 155 shell implanted in a mud wall. The initial charge went off and blew them on their ass, but it didn't set the 155 off. If that 155 would have went off, they would have been both vaporized. Yeah, and that 155, that was basically a howitzer shell, right? 125 yes. millimeter howitzer? Yes. Those are nasty. I mean, they have figured out how to take these artillery rounds and turn them into, like you say, like into IEDs. And you don't even know they're there because they'll put them in these walls. They pack it with mud. That mud dries. You can't tell that anything's in there, but they well, know where they are. Well, they would hide this stuff so well. You could, you didn't have a, you did not have an idea where it was, especially at night under night vision. You had no clue. So, you know, we do that. So, so it brings us back to Hazi Madad. So we, um, going at night um we don't take any incoming fire which is great we um settle in and begin to clear a couple compounds and wait to morning time to move out to do a thorough more thorough search so first light comes and they'll usually hit us first time after morning prayer after first light so first light comes they do their morning prayer and they do a couple probing attacks where they're just trying to size us up a little bit. So, we, you know, we, we suppress those pretty easily. And then they're, they have these, like, ICOM radios they use that we can intercept. And they're always talking shit on these things. Oh, we are killing them. We are beating them. We're blowing them up. We hear them dying. And most times it's um, us finding their IDs and blowing them up. Um, so they're talking shit over there that they got to try to find a spot to set up the machine guns. And we're like, oh, you know, they're just freaking bullshit and screw you, you know. So this is in the, um, this is middle of August. It's hot as hell. Um, we have, we had like a Predator drone up, but I don't know how this happens. The wings iced over and the Predator had to go down. 
I guess um, up in elevation, it's still pretty cold up there. And we didn't have any close air support. They got called away to another unit that was, um, they called it a tick, troops in contact. They were in a firefight. So um, it's during the day, and because we were under some fire, and um, we, um, they, we, they weren't going to come pick us up. So they're like, okay, you have to try to make it to this combat outpost, which wasn't that far. It was probably, oh, five, six hundred meters from where we were. And we stopped at this little area, this little village before we moved out. And he had the locals. It was just like an eerie feeling. Something didn't feel right. And you talked before in the pre-call about your spidey senses. Is this one of those times where your spidey senses are kind of going off? You're like, there's something here. There's something here. Oh, definitely. Something's going, you know, it was just too quiet. And um, just the people, they were just being just like, you know, they were smiling away, but just it was weird. It's something, you know, definitely spidey, something was not right. So we, the commander at the time of the, the embrace, he decided, okay, we're going to make our move to the combat outpost. So we're going single file and we're sweeping through this little village area. So one of our guys says, I think I see something up in one of those buildings there. Then one of the green brace takes a look and he's like, I, I don't see anything. I think we're good. So we kept moving and less than a, Five minutes later, luckily I was by one like these half pony walls and the things over there, those mud walls and those, they can, they do a damn good job at stopping bullets and RPGs and everything. So all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. They sure as shit were trying to find a place to set up in the machine guns. Um, the initial barrage, I had bullets coming over my head. I had bullets coming from the side of me. And there was four individuals with us that got hit right off the bat. No DEA guys, um, a Green Beret, and some of our partner force guys. And then one Green Beret, he's calling off over the radio that he's got a femoral bleed. We're like, oh, shit. And I had my bell-fed machine gun at the time, which was a M60 Echo 4. It's a cut-down special ops version of the M60 that the SEALs use. So I'm rocking away with that machine gun. And it's not like the movies where ammo doesn't last forever. (laughs) You know, I'm starting to run. Ammo is heavy too. Oh yeah. Every hundred rounds of that uh, box of ammo was eight pounds. And I usually carry about 400 rounds on me and then try to spread load some more ammo. So I'm ripping with this machine gun. I'm trying to shoot at areas where I'm seeing maybe like puffs of smoke and this and that. And um, I'm like, Joe, you better slow your rate of fire down because if we start getting overrun, you better have something left. And I would always used to carry one frag grenade and I would carry a pistol with an extra mag. A lot of guys didn't carry pistols over there, but um, I wasn't going to be, let's say, taken prisoner voluntarily. So I was going to try to fight it out as much as I could. Um, so always save one round. Yes. 
Uh, it's kind of morbid, but um, you don't want to end up a prisoner over there. That's for damn sure. And then that, not a lot of nice things are going to happen to you. And your head's most likely going to separate from your shoulders at some point. Yes. And you will be raped. And so I'm running through ammo and the Green Berets, their partner force, which was the Afghani commandos, they carried the same type of round in their machine gun. They carried a, a full 240 Bravo, but the same rounds I carried in mine. So <clears throat> I tell one of our translators, not tra he was one of the NRU guys who spoke decent English. I said, go get me some more ammo. So he comes back a short time later with this little link of belt with 25 rounds. I'm like, thank you, but what am I going to do with this? So I just link it on link it on one of my belts. And so I slow my rate of fire down. And I tell you, um, the medevac choppers that came in, those guys had balls of steel because there was RPGs being shot at all directions from them. They landed, got our most severely wounded out of there. And then... <coughs> <coughs> We finally got some close air support to suppress <clears throat> the insurgents a little bit. And then we still have to make it to the combat outpost. So I call this was our like Mogadishu mile from Black Hawk down where you're moving and shooting. And usually, you know, you're trying to go slow because of IEDs, but that was all out the window at this point. So you're moving, shooting, moving, shooting. And at this combat outpost, was, um, an airborne unit was there. So they hear all this ruckus. They bring out some of their gun trucks. And to make it there, we have to go through this big open field. And they got their gun trucks out there. We're like, shoot, fucking shoot, shoot, shoot. Give us some fire. So they finally started shooting a little bit. And we ended up making it to this combat outpost. We looked like a bunch of wet beat dogs, I think, when we finally got there. Just looked like a yard sale us laying all around there afterwards. But luckily, um, everybody ended up surviving, thank God. Man, uh, you know, and you, you, I don't think people really realize, look, we're not underestimating the Taliban either. These guys have list, lasted, they, they lasted against the Russians, you know, and obviously we know what happened with the, the very chaotic withdrawal, you know, out of Afghanistan. These guys, as much as, much as backwards that they are, they still do know how to fight. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's always been a question for me, too, because uh, I know it was, we did the same thing with the Mujahideen, you know, uh, during the— uh, Afghan-Russian war, you find a way to supply them certain things. Did you guys have any idea or did any intel come down as who was supplying the Taliban with their weapons? Well, I'm sure that the, they were getting a lot of stuff from the Chinese. I'm pretty sure a lot of their, but you know, a lot of the, the weaponry they used was, you know, AK-40s, uh, AK-47s, um, SKSs, um, their PKM, their belt-fed machine gun. You know, and stuff of, you know, stuff of that nature. You know, at, at this point, Russia was actually on our side. So a lot of their stuff wasn't coming from them. But they would have some of these fighters from other countries, other Muslim companies, countries come over, especially Chechens, which were pretty skilled. And a lot of those Chechens were more or less like their snipers and stuff. Yeah, and a lot of those had cut their teeth, too, fighting against Russian forces and special forces. And oh, yeah. So like you said, you know, it's a pretty, you know, backwards country, but those guys can fight, and they're hard. Don't and underestimate un them. Yeah. Unfortunately, most of the good fighters went to the insurgent groups, the ones we worked with. They weren't—they were supposed to be their best and brightest, but 
they weren't any great shakes, let me tell you. Every day, this is how to get on a helicopter. This is how to get off a helicopter. And, you know, maybe, and I'm I'm being generous with this, maybe 15% of them would fight effectively when push came to shove, the ones we, we're working with. That's going to factor in when we talk about the second tour. So, um, so this kind of, I mean, in a sense, I kind of want to wrap up. Let's wrap up this first tour. So that's the first tour. I mean, you finally make it back. You, you get your, you, you know, you've got your orders now to go back. You get back on the plane. Tell us about going home. What did that feel like when you were finally left, you know, Afghani, uh, Afghanistan airspace and, you know, you're flying home? Oh, it was incredible. At the time, um, <laughs> the FBI had this plane that rotated people, and now we got to fly back on that thing, and they had all the food and food and drink you wanted to, you know, to drink and eat. So it was um, a pretty thing and, you know, pretty nice thing. And you, you know, waiting for my, um, my girlfriend at the time was waiting for me and everybody's family. So you were just uh, elated to get home. You're like, thank God I made it out of here. So, so the FBI had one of those planes? <laughs> yes. But after, after that year, they didn't have any more. It cost a lot of money to run this thing. Oh, it it was like a regular full size commercial aircraft. Ah, but hey, the best part was like you said, food and booze, right? Yes. Hey, speaking of that, what was the booze situation during your tour? Well, you know, the U.S. military is one of the only they can't have really any alcohol drinks. Um, a lot of these other partner forces, you know, they can have so many beers a month or this and that. So, um. We would kind of maybe, um, I can confirm nor deny this, bring over some booze in some of our containers when we go over there. Hey, players, if you thought this episode was great, I'm telling you the next part will be even more amazing. So make sure you tune in hear Joe talk about his last engagement in firefight that resulted in him getting shot through the head by the Taliban, and he lives and see what he does with his life. This is an amazing story. In the meantime, go visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you also visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have the most amazing content. We just got through reviewing The Departed with Matt Damon and Leo DiCaprio. And for December, Murph and I will be doing the patented Narcometer review of the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Yes, that's right. Die Hard with Bruce Willis. So make sure you tune back in Thursday and listen to the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. (laughs) 